This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston, and today we are talking about the 1999 debut eponymous album from Slipknot. Yes, we uh, an, are. An album that is one of my all-time favourites, um, but is, uh, we'll, I'll explain later, but there are many, many different versions of this album. Um, so we're going to talk about one of the original releases, not the, the original release, but one of the original releases. Uh, so if you've done your homework and you could only get like one of the reissues or something perfectly understandable, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll explain everything later. Um, but first let's go through a bit of follow-up. Absolutely. And you're, you're working off your original copy of the album, correct? Uh, that's right. Yeah. 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 Um, r- right. The one I've got is a UK, uh, release from the time of release. Uh, so it has some tracks on it that aren't on later, uh, versions, but it's still not the same track list as the original U S release. Like I say, it gets, right. <laughs> it gets a bit complicated. So I'll explain later. <laughs> Don't worry. All will be made clear. <laughs> so we got a lot of good feedback on the uh, episode on Dogman from King's X, which was mm. a listener's choice episode, which I really, really, really loved, and you kind of liked. I yeah, well, and one of the funny things about seeing the reaction from our listeners uh, to that album was that I think I was won over by it more than many of our listeners, which is unusual. Right. That's really unusual. Normally, it's the other way around. <laughs> yeah, and, and the interesting, uh, I thought people's take on it was very interesting. So so Daniel said, my first impression of the album was that there was too much soul yodeling. Uh, I'm kind of allergic to that style of music and singing, although Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam meant well, they gave rise to Creed and other bands. So yeah, it's, it's, it's tough for bands to... And we should talk about that certainly with Slipknot, because it's once bands kind of have a hand in establishing a genre... Oh yeah, yeah, they can't control the offspring sometimes, and then they they get blamed for that later on. He said uh, it was on the second listen that I really appreciated the sheer musicality of this album that justified the whole soul yodeling thing. I'm not a big fan of '90s rock uh, in parentheses grunge, but I think I will return in the future to this album because in the end I really did enjoy it, and it gave a different perspective on a genre of sound I don't really care for, which I think is which is yeah the yeah i mean that was kind of, of my show right right and that was kind of my reaction as well was like you know this isn't gonna sort of rise to the top of my playlist but i will listen to it again because i enjoyed it a lot more you know i had some criticisms as sure. people who listened last time know but i enjoyed it a lot more than i expected to yeah i don't think jack uh will be returning to this one he said i had never <laughs> even heard of king's x let alone listen to their music and somehow unlike anthony i had predicted exactly what their music would sound like just from the name uh, they sounded like a poor man's mashup of 80% Alice in Chains and 20% Nickelback. Oh! Uh, it sounded way too middle of the road, radio rock, and nothing particular stood out. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I would say to Jack, and I think we talked about this on the show, if you haven't given Dogman a listen with earphones, I would highly, highly, highly recommend that because I think that you lose out on a lot of the nuance of that production which to me just adds this whole other layer. But he went on to say, everything sounded like I've heard, uh, I've heard it done better by Alice in Chains. Uh, track two shoes in particular couldn't sound more like them bones if it tried. Unfortunately, this album did almost nothing for me. 
Yeah, which I really disagree with that point, uh, Jack, because Them Bones is one of my favourite Alice in Change tracks, one of my favourite tracks ever. A track that, funnily enough, actually, in one of my old bands, we used to regularly do. Uh, and, yeah, I shoes couldn't be less like it. I mean... <laughs> That's such Isn't a weird, weird though, how, to how me, we, that's such a weird comparison. Yeah. I think you're going to be saying that to me a lot in this episode, but we'll, we'll get into that later. <laughs> uh, so Dan said, am I allowed to post my thoughts after being quoted twice in the episode? He said, I love all of King's X partly because I found them near the end of my Christian phase and their music helped me when it was over. Pillow is still one of, if not my fa- absolute favorite riffs of all time. He said, I was worried you wouldn't mention the harmonies, etc. For instance, the bridge of the title track by using Ty Tabor, uh, is sung by Ty Tabor, the guitarist. If you like that, and also get Anthony Johnson's comment about thinking that they were like Dream Theater, then check out the Jelly Jam, which is Ty plus John Myung, the bass player from Dream Theater, and Rod Morgenstein, the drummer from Winger. Uh, also, Doug did sing, sing on Dream Theater, uh, the Dream Theater song Lines in the Sand. Uh, he said, if you like the heavy groove bits of King's X, check out the song Groove Machine from their seventh album, Tapehead. If you just like liked King's X in general, check out their second album, Gretchen Goes to Nebraska, and the song Mission specifically. He said, also have to say that KXM is awesome. Yeah, that would be my recommendation to check out KXM. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Kenneth, I've got to say, the, the supergroup with Dream Theater and Winger, just that, <laughs> that doesn't sound like my thing no, at all. That's not, that's not <laughs> enticing you? Uh, it, it did for like, it, uh, funnily enough, it's the Winger angle that makes me want to listen to that. So Right, I know you uh, like Winger, yeah. Uh, Kenneth said, another great show, really enjoyed the chat, but the album wasn't for me. Like Jack, I just found it second-rate grunge, if amazingly well-produced, second-rate grunge. So yeah, people seem to have a, a a more negative reaction, I think, than you did, and, and weren't as won over um, by this album. Let's see. Yeah, which, as I say, is just like unusual. But I mean, there were obviously, you know, people who, I think most of the positive reaction we got was from people who were already familiar with the band, uh, which is, you know, totally understandable. And one of those actually was, um, during the last episode, we mentioned while we were doing it that we had like, we got sent an info dump PDF by Phil Robinson, who is clearly, you know, a King's X mega fan. Sure. And, um, he, Phil followed up actually and sent us an email after the episode. And he says, awesome episode, guys. I really enjoy your discussion. Appreciate the thoughtfulness about the albums that you come into, uh, each of these episodes with. I also wanted to say thanks for mentioning my info dump. Uh, I wasn't expecting that, but it was a nice gesture. Well, you know, thank you, Phil, for sending it in because it was actually helpful. <laughs> um, um, he says, I have a few comments about the track by track discussion. First, contrary to Anthony's suspicion, Fool You was not a live staple for the band. And if setlist.fm is to be believed, they've only played it three times. Wow. Which I find amazing because it seems such a natural fit for a live song, but go figure. Uh, point two, he says, based on your discussion, it sounds like you thought Cigarettes was a dog song, when in fact the music and lyrics were written by Ty Tabor. Which, again, you know, like, yes, yep. I absolutely thought it was a dog song because those lyrics felt so relevant to, you know, everything he was going through absolutely. when he recorded that album. Uh, and then point three says, finally, Manic Depression was not a hidden track. The CD went straight into it from Pillow. But he agrees that Pillow probably really should have been the album closer. Um, he also says, King's X was notorious for not listing who wrote what in the liner notes. Uh, so, and it could be one of those cases where Genesis and Queen and a few bands like that are infamous for this, where they just put all songs written by Genesis and then, you know, th that's it. And they just share everything and whoever actually did stuff 
they figure you don't need to know that. Um, so he says, for clarification, all lyrics and music on that album were written by Doug, except Dogman, Flies and Blue Skies, Fool You, Complain, and Cigarettes, which are all written by Ty. Go figure. Uh, so he says again, thanks for the podcast and for this episode in particular. I really enjoyed it. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Phil. We will try to do that. Yeah, David had left uh, a bunch of comments. He likes to comment as he was listening along, but he, uh, with yes. regard to the vocals, he said this is the first <laughs> album where Doug was listed as lead vocals, he thinks. Uh, four, the four previous ones would list the instrument first and then vocals for each member, um, but they all sing the harmonies. And so let's see, what else did he say? Yeah, he said, I'm listening at work, but need to comment as the show goes on, so I will have many posts. So you can go to the Facebook page and read all of his posts through there. <laughs> um, he said, though, interesting fact for me, he said, did you know that Dokken Dysfunctional was heavily influenced by King's X? And I did not know that. So that just gives me another thing to love about it. Uh, Dan had said, I like King's X a lot, but I wish a different album had been picked. In my opinion, Dogman is their worst album. When it came out, Grunge was new, and Dogman was their attempt at it, and again, in my opinion, it failed. Uh, for years after this album, I didn't bother with getting any of their following albums since Dogman left such a bad taste in my mouth. It wasn't until about 10 years ago I started listening to them again and catching up on the albums that I missed. I was glad they didn't stay in that direction. I even tried to give Dogman another chance since I thought maybe my older ears would appreciate it more, but alas, it wasn't the case. One pass-through was enough. So from someone yeah. who is a big fan of the band, not just yeah. not this album. But um, I mean, let's let's just remind people that that was a listener choice. So it's not like we decided to do a King's X album and they said, okay, which one will we do? That was the only King's X album nominated. And that happened to be the one that came up, you know, uh, in the random choice. So that's yeah. why we did it. And Phil said, uh, King's X is a band that my brain tells me I'm supposed to love but they just don't touch my musical soul for whatever reason. I don't dislike them, but there is something about their music that just feels flat and antiseptic to me. I hear the talent and there is a lot to like, but in the end, I just don't. And that's, I want to kind of put a pin in that for future conversations, because I think that's a great conversation piece, like bands that you know, based on your musical taste, that you are that you should love. Like that should just oh, be like right yeah. in your yeah. wheelhouse and you should just absolutely adore and for whatever reason, they just don't click with you. And I yep, can't think of any off the top of my head right now, but I know there are examples of that for me. The one that comes immediately to mind for me is System of a Down, who oh, are okay. in exactly in my wheelhouse in terms of, you know, they are a band I should love. And yeah, I don't mind them. I will happily listen to them. They don't offend me, but they just don't do it for me. You know what I mean? They don't give me that. I don't have that reaction to them that makes me go yeah right i just kind of like eh, you know it's okay eh, whatever uh just a couple more to finish up so tony had said agreed with anthony about the slightly weak choruses on this album the vocals help provide a lot of soul to the overall sound which i was impressed by generally in fact that pretty much sums up how i felt about this one a great sounding record in need of a final bit of magic in the songwriting i can see how they would have failed to make an impact these uh there isn't one song on here that i could imagine becoming a smash hit at the time uh, let's see. And which, uh, which I think is a fair criticism. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. a shame, but I, I think that is a fair criticism. Uh, Andy said, so I'll start off by saying this, and th that this is, in my opinion, the least metal album we've covered so far, which is not a knock. I don't care whatever you want to call it. I listen to all kinds of stuff, so I wasn't put off. What I hear in this album is sort of standard power trio stuff with clear psychedelic influence kind of grunged up a little. I guess I hadn't realized just how old Doug Pinnock is. He's the same age as my mom. <laughs> <laughs> and because of that, uh, what this album reminds me of, probably bizarrely, is early 70s ZZ Top. 
He says, like Trey Zalmos wow. and uh, Tejas, ZZ Top. Listen to something like Master of Sparks or Precious and Grace, and maybe you'll see it. King's X lyrics are way more emo, obviously, but I hear similar instrumental interplay and psychedelic influences. Whatever, man, I love early ZZ Top. So that's an interesting take on that. Very interesting, yeah. Um, and I mean, that's kind of to say that this is probably the least heavy thing we've done, considering some of the albums that I've introduced into the mix, like um, uh, Linkin Park and the Within Temptation album and yeah. things like that. You know, that's well, and Kenneth quite- immediately right after said <laughs> Scorpions for my money are the least metal band so far. Um, yeah, it's kind of. I mean, you, you, we've both picked albums, but it, that, well, it, and the, the Def Leppard album. You know, you sure. Could, yeah, we've both put, made picks that you could argue fall into that. But it's an interesting, I, you know, if you'd asked me, what's the least metal album you've done? The King's X one, much as I didn't think it was very heavy, there's no way that I would have picked that as, as the least metal. Yeah, yeah. me either. Uh, I'm trying to think. Definitely not that one. Uh, let's see. So CJ said, I'm a fairly new listener, and this is the first episode I've listened to while it's still the most recent one. So I'm going to comment. Like Anthony, I had always dismissed King's X as being kind of a poppy, hard rock thing with prog elements. In my head, they were like a Christian Rush or something, which at the time was not cool at all. I was outraged that they were signed to Megaforce with all my favorite thrash bands. The good news is Dogman sounds nothing like I thought King's X sounded. The bad news is it still wasn't for me. I actually really love loads of prog, but I don't much like uh, grunge 90s alt-rock at all, so this was actually much worse. Still enjoyed listening to the podcast and hearing you guys thrash this out. Objectively, I agreed with most of your comments in terms of the many good things about Dogman. I just subjectively didn't like it. Uh, and he's really psyched yep. for the Slipknot episode, which is kind of, uh, I think, where we'll leave the comments for this one. So yeah, again, if you haven't, if you're on Facebook and you haven't checked out the Facebook group yet, this is pretty indicative of the conversations that go on after an episode of the show. And so, if you have things to say, you know, whether while you, you know while you're listening or afterwards, go and and jump into the group because there's a lot of great discussion there. Absolutely. And you can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Uh, and of course, you can also, if you want to support the show, at Patreon, uh, which is patreon.com slash thrash it out. And we have had a bunch of new patrons actually since the last episode. And funnily enough, you just read CJ's uh, comment on Facebook. He's the first, he was the first like new patron to sign up after that episode. Um, so since the last episode, we have new patrons CJ Lines, Christopher Powell, David Lawrence, Andrew Newman, Tori Rodriguez, Mark Sawicki, David Richardson, uh, he of the Multiple Posts, and Rob Trevino, all since the last episode, which is, I think, the most new patrons we've had in a single episode. It's uh, quite extraordinary. So thank you all. And welcome. Uh, and yeah, yeah, and welcome to the community, absolutely. And as I say, if anybody, and I know that some of them are longtime listeners who've just decided to you know join up, which is fantastic. Yeah, we um, really, really, really appreciate that. Yeah, because, you know, as we've said, I know we say it every episode, but it really is true that, you know, you you guys supporting us is what helps us keep the show going and keep thrashing. So, yeah, patreon.com slash thrash it out for that. Um, and, oh, and the other thing uh, in terms of our sort of listeners and what have you, uh, I haven't mentioned this for a while, but last month we also cracked the uh, mysterious, whatever that mysterious RSS subscribers number is on our <laughs> website metrics. We cracked three and a half thousand last month. Oh. Which is, crap. I know. I mean, like, as I've said before, I'm absolutely certain that that's not the number of actual listeners we have. But in terms of the trend line of our, you know, the amount of people listening to the show, uh, it just keeps going up. So that's fantastic. So, that you know, thank amazing. you all for, for listening and spreading the word. Yeah, it's amazing. 
Uh, while we're still doing housekeeping stuff, I did want to quickly mention that I have seen at least one show since the last time that we recorded. On the 29th of September, I got to go see Saxon and UFO at the Palladium in Worcester, Massachusetts. And this was my second time seeing Saxon, first time ever seeing UFO, uh, who is my buddy Matt's favorite band, who I do Secret Identity with. And so it was kind of cool to see his favorite band with him. Uh, and that was a really good show. And I, I, like I said, I had never seen those guys or or really been huge fans of them. But seeing them live really gave me a, a deeper appreciation for what they do. Um, so that was really great. But Saxon, holy freaking crap, man. If you have not seen Saxon live, for the love of God, go see Saxon live. Like this is a band where I, I remember this after the first time I saw them. When when we saw them with Armored Saint, they probably played in front of a, cla- a crowd of maybe like two hundred people, and it was a it was not a big crowd at all. They played like they were in an arena with a hundred thousand people, like they were at the Rose Bowl. It was or something, unbelievable, yeah. and that game I was like, first of all, I was blown away by Biff Byford, who at sixty three has lost nothing. And is amazing. He's like Bruce Dickinson. Like he just continues to to sound amazing. So I loved them after that, and I really started getting into Saxon. So this is my first time seeing them since that time. And they had a full house at the Palladium this night. And boy, let me tell you, it was a special night. A night where you can feel the crowd just completely feeding off of the band. The thing about Saxon is that when you listen to their albums, particularly their early albums, which are more rock than than sort of real metal. You, when you see them live, they are so much heavier, like exponentially heavier than when you listen to them on an album, with maybe the exception of like Battering Ram, which is their new one, which is super heavy, uh, the last one that they just recently put out. But they're just so heavy. And, and people, I think, don't anticipate that because after they did their set while we were waiting for UFO, I must have had 15 people that I was talking to in the crowd that were like, holy freaking crap, Saxon, right? I mean, how amazing were they? I can't believe that they're so heavy. Like, it was just awesome. And then at the end of the night, uh, Matt and I got to, we we kind of hung out for a little while. We had the VIP passes, but things ran late and we didn't really get to do the whole VIP thing. So we end up leaving. And as we walk out of the uh, venue, everybody's hanging out outside by the buses. And so we went over and I got to meet Biff Byford and get a picture with him. And he was awesome. And he was uh, genuinely impressed by the crowd that they had that night and just the energy and stuff like that. They were letting the fans like vote on which songs they were going to play and stuff like that during the concert, like just absolutely fantastic. So if you get a chance to see Saxon, man, go see Saxon. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I haven't been to any gigs, but I am going to see Paradise Lost in a couple of weeks. Oh, I saw you as post we about that, yeah. Yeah, I got my tickets for that show at the Electric Ballroom in London. Um, if any listeners are going to be there, uh, you know, dro- drop us a line on Twitter or email. Uh, go to thrashnetpodcast.com and uh, links to our Twitter and email are there. Um, and let me know if you're going to be there. Uh, that'd be awesome. Uh, but yeah, either way, it's the first time I've seen them live in quite some time, actually. So I'm really looking forward to you know seeing how the show goes um and actually just to rewind a second you mentioned uh matt and secret identity but correct me if i'm wrong um secret identity is actually now come to a close and you and matt do a music show so tell us about that uh yes actually so we just recorded the 799th episode of secret identity and we have one left to record and then we are done we are ending on 800 um, which is a 12-year run that we've had on the show. We started in March of 2006, and so we're that in our 12th year. Isn't it crazy? Um, 
another thing I haven't even like wrapped my mind around yet because it's just like so crazy to even think about. But yes, we have a new show that we're doing called the Power Chords Podcast, and that show is a show where we cover a lot of late 70s and really a lot of 80s like rock and metal, very much inclusive of hair metal and stuff like that. And so uh, Matt it tends to be sort of a on the lighter side of the of the metal spectrum than I am. And so it's sort of our Venn diagram of overlapping taste. So a lot of hair metal, a lot of stuff like that. We, we would talk about bands like UFO. You know, we'll talk about bands like Def Leppard and Motley Crue and stuff like that. Uh, we just posted an episode that had, uh, it was Sex Pistols, and who was the other band? It might have been, oh, it was Def Leppard, because we talked about Hysteria, The because um, they just had the 30th anniversary of the Hysteria album, which is an album that I hated when it came out. Jesus, but, is that 30 years old? Yeah, I know. Uh, I know, right? Does that make you want to throw up? It was 1987, oh, dude. Isn't that crazy? Uh, <laughs> and so we revisited that, and I really tried to to get into it but that that was a turning point album for me and Def Leppard but I was able to to sort of bring new ears to it to it this time around but that's pretty indicative of like the stuff that we talk about on that show and if you like Secret Identity it's very much the template of Secret Identity applied to music which many people who listen to that show know that Matt and I are probably bigger music fans than we are comic book fans so we did a 12 year show about comic books music is the thing that we are really really super passionate about and so it's you know it's news it's reviews it's interviews um he's actually going to have an inter- he did an interview recently with uh, Greg Capullo who is the artist on Batman because he's a huge black label society fan and so that will be a uh, right. uh, interview that's coming up so we're going to keep some of the comic stuff kind of going in that show but it's going to be talking to creators of all different types about music and so that's kind of the focus but if you liked the format of secret identity it is pretty much the same format except now we're talking about music Sure. Well, and in terms of listeners to this show, obviously, if people like you, then they may also like you talking about music, especially, then they may well uh, like that show. Um, uh, actually, on the bright side of thinking about it, if it's 30 years since Hysteria, because that was 1987, that means it's also the 30th anniversary of the Sisters of Mercy's Floodland album this year. That oh. makes me feel a lot better. Because yeah. that still makes me feel old, but it's a much better album. I know, dude. <laughs> so old, right? It's like I said the same thing, and actually when I picked up that Hysteria album, it was because on the cover it was like 30th anniversary. I'm like, huh, it's probably been 15 years since I really gave this a good listen. Right. So I picked it up. But I also picked up the latest Paradise Lost album, and that was something I had told you about but oh, yeah i was yeah, at yeah. my local music store and i saw the new paradise lost album and i was like Medusa. you know what? i'm getting this and i've listened to it once all the way through because i've been listening to, mostly to the album that we're going to talk about today and i really liked it it feels much heavier than the album that we talked about on this show right well that's because in recent times they have sort of gravitated back towards a more obviously kind of doom death sure. sound whereas they were fully embracing the whole gothic rock metal yep. thing on icon um uh, and even more so on draconian times the album that followed it so yeah it's you know in terms of just sheer sound and the fact that nick's using not exclusively growled vocals but like predominantly growled uh yeah it's no surprise that it would sound you know heavier uh, i really like it as well obviously you know as you as Anybody who listens to the show would expect. Um, I haven't listened to it more than 
maybe a dozen times. So um, I'm still kind of, I know I have a couple of favorite tracks, but I'm still kind of, you know, sort of the others are still settling in my mind. Sure. Um, but yeah, it is a, it is a good album. It's a, a very clear and sort of obvious, I guess, actually evolution from the previous album. Um, what I'm interested in now, or almost as interested, is to see what they do for the next album, because they're kind of, they're repeating the cycle that they did early in their career, where uh-huh. they kind of went as heavy as they could at the time. And then they were like, okay, we've done that now. Now what do we do? Uh, you know, we, we've got to do something else. And they're kind of approaching that stage again with this phase of really embracing the Death Doom thing. So I'm going to be really interested to see what happens on the the next album. But in the meantime, I, as I say, I am really enjoying this one. Uh, Coldest Winter is uh, longest winter <laughs> sorry coldest winter is my book <laughs> yeah longest winter is uh by far my favorite track on the album at the moment but as i say that could all shift and change the more i listen to it yeah i also just picked up uh the new europe album called walk the earth that came out on friday and i picked up the new album from act of defiance which is a couple of the old members of megadeth this is their sophomore album i think it's called old new scars old wounds something like that um which has been getting pretty good reviews so far so i haven't even had a chance to listen to that one yet um or the europe album but i just i just did grab those so i've got some uh got some good stuff to listen to cool cool all right well and then in the meantime obviously we've spent the last month listening to uh slipknot's debut album and as i said to me this is uh, an album that i'm really familiar with i uh, I wasn't quite in on the ground floor, as it were, of Slipknot, but I got this album. I think Iowa had just been released uh-huh. when I got the when I got this one, but I hadn't actually heard any Slipknot at all. I'd heard of them, but hadn't heard them uh, because this would have been before I was freelancing for Metal Hammer. Uh, because during the period when I was freelancing for Metal Hammer, Slipknot were basically one of the biggest bands in the world, or certainly. On that kind of meteoric rise to becoming one of the biggest bands in the world, they were already very, very popular and well established. Um, and I actually got this album from an old friend called Paul Black, who is uh, an old ex Warren Ellis forum and uh, the V Denizen like web forums I used to be on. Uh, and he gave me a bunch of metal albums that he just wasn't that into, uh, and this was one of them. And uh, I don't know if Paul listens to this show. I think he does, but I'm not sure. If if you are listening, Paul, thank you. Uh, again, I know I thanked him at the time. Um, f- because this easily, very, very quickly, became my favourite of those albums uh, that he gave me. Um, and, and has stayed one of my favourite albums ever since. I absolutely loved it. And to me, it was very clear listening to this album and this would have been in like i say 2000 2001 something like that it was very clear listening to it why they were so popular because at the time at the end of the late 90s obviously there was the whole new metal thing um there wasn't a band it was a bit like what we were saying about pantera on the pantera episode there was a feeling like there was a void there was a gap for a really heavy band to come along in the metal scene and the late nineties kind of felt like that as well. And then, and you know, we were at a point where, uh, corn were regarded as like one of the heaviest 
mainstream metal bands, for want of a better term, because, you know, obviously you had death metal and black metal sure. and the, that sort of niche stuff. But in terms of like the kind of what we think of as the mainstream world of metal, like I say, Korn were regarded as basically the heaviest band in that area. Uh, and then you had bands like Limp Biscuit, who were heavy in places, but obviously were also, you know, by a lot of metal fans seen as kind of a joke. Um, and, but there was nothing like this. And then along comes this album and just blows out your eardrums and absolutely goes, no, 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 this, this is what we mean by heavy metal. Yeah, so uh, so many things that I, I have thoughts about as we go through this. But um, just in terms of how I came to Slipknot, I did not come to Slipknot when they first came out either. I'm going to guess that I came to them probably. So Iowa came out in 2001, correct? And then, that sounds about right. Yeah. And then their third album, I'm just scrolling down Wikipedia here. Uh, volume three came out in 2004. I'm going to say it was either right before or right around the time of volume three that I first really became kind of musically aware of, of Slipknot because uh, my sister was dating a guy at the time who was super into Slipknot. And so me, you know, and this was the first guy that she had dated that was like a metalhead. And so right. we were, of course, you know, kind of sharing metal recommendations and stuff like that. And so he gave me, I think he gave me Iowa. And that was my first real kind of uh, exposure to him, other than hearing the... Um, you know, Wait and Bleed song, which I think was the, if you had asked me, do you know any songs from Slipknot? That was the one song that I knew because that got more airplay at the time, obviously. So um, that was how I became aware of them. And that's interesting, actually, because you're right. Wait and Bleed did get a lot of airplay, but Spit It Out was actually the sort of biggest, that was their first single from the, this debut album and was actually kind of the biggest hit at the time until volume three, actually. And then it was... Uh, and I think that's probably another reason why they came more to your attention during volume uh, three, because that spawned quite a lot of singles, including things like duality and before I forget, right, right, which right. were huge hits. Yep. They had like, you know, big expensive music videos. They were played all over the place. Uh, they released their first live album. Volume three was kind of, uh, I mean, it's hard to make any, uh, make a comparison with something like the black album. Uh, for Slipknot, but I would say it was more like Volume 3 was like, let's say, their Master of Puppets, yep. in that it was the band, it was the album that launched them from a really, really popular band amongst a sort of, you know, small but vocal group of metal fans to the whole world of heavy metal knew who this band was all right. of a sudden. Um, it's not an exact analogy, but you get what I'm going Yeah, no, at. absolutely. And, and so for me, like, I... I just, I kind of missed that. And this was a time I think where I had sort of retreated into my comfort zone for music. Like I wasn't listening to the radio as much, you know, because I wasn't just, I really wasn't super into the direction that music had taken at the time. And so I was still following all of my favorite bands and, but I wasn't going to a ton of shows at the time. And so it was kind of like a lull period for me. And so, you know, as I started building up my music collection again and and um, sort of checking in on things that I had missed. That's how I kind of came across Slipknot. And at the time, I enjoyed Iowa, but I wasn't blown away by it. And so I didn't really return to it on a regular basis. But it was it was the Slipknot album that I had. Like that was right. that was the one Slipknot album that I had. <laughs> and so certainly I had not spent really any time with this album at all until you chose it for this show. And this was my first real. Um, sort of immersing myself in Slipknot sound and 
giving sure. them a really good uh, solid look. Well, and I think okay, that's uh, interesting, and I think possibly one of the reasons for that that it didn't blow you away is possibly because even by that time, by 2002, 2003, and this ties in with, you know, regular listeners will know that my theme for this volume is albums that changed metal. And it's, I've been racking my brains. I am genuinely struggling to think of an album that's been more influential on metal in the last 20 years than this album. I'm genuinely struggling to think of anything that has had as much of an impact on the world of heavy metal as this album did back in 1999, you know, since then. Um, and maybe that's why Iowa didn't blow you away because if you weren't listening to it until around 2002, 2003, by that time, Slipknot had already had such a, a bit like the early days of Linkin Park, right, such had a their massive impact. The genre. Yeah. Yeah, such a huge impact. It's like, and it was a bit like the sort of, you know, pre-post Cowboys from Hell. It was like, suddenly, well, and, you know, uh, Ride the Lightning or Master of Puppets. Sure. Suddenly, there was old metal, and then there was this new metal. And I mean, proper new metal, not, you know, the, the new metal genre. Um, and so, yeah, there, it was a watershed moment. The minute everybody heard this album, a thousand bands around the world went, oh, oh, no, what we're doing sounds really old. We need to do that. Um, and so within a very short space of time, there were a lot of Slipknot copycat bands out there. And there were also, I mean, Slipknot were also part of a movement of bands within you know, the sort of, I mean, they were, you know, you can argue about what's new metal or whatever until you're blue in the face, but they were kind of connected to that movement. And you had other bands like Mushroom Head who famously they got into a bit of a feud with, um, who sounded similar, although the mushroom head much more sort of proggy to my mind, and also wore masks. And uh, what was the other one? Mudvayne, who all, again wore masks. And, you know, oh, lots yeah, of these I bands. Mudvayne. Yeah, lots of these bands down tuning to, you I know, think C, I saw B, Mudvayne even A. At Ozfest. And the thing is, I've never seen Slipknot in concert, um, but I believe I have seen Mudvayne in concert. Right. And there were all, a lot of bands like that around. Uh, at the time and so they were kind of you know i mean they st they performed famously in des moines you know in a sort of because there was nothing going on in that scene and that's why the band exists so many metal bands you know come about because of that because there's nothing happening in their hometown there's yeah. no scene and they're like fuck it let's just make a scene well um, and th their origins is kind of interesting because they were all like in different bands and then yes. um one of the things that I was reading is as much uh, of the band's early development was retrospectively attributed to the late night planning sessions between Paul Gray, Sean Crahan, and Joey Jordison, uh, Jordison at the gas station where Jordison worked nights. Yep. And so uh, it was there in late 1995 that Jordison suggested changing the band name to Slipknot after their song of the same name. And because they had obviously been putting some stuff together and they had all been in different bands. And so it was kind of interesting to see how it came together, which, as you said, was kind of because there was, there just wasn't much going on at the time. Right. There was no other scene. So everybody knew everybody else in that local scene. Um, and uh, yeah, and, I mean, Slipknot famously have nine members, <laughs> which is just like nuts. Uh, and part of that, I mean, that's also kind of linked to a criticism of the band, which, forgive me, I can't remember, but somebody mentioned on the Facebook page, and I think is absolutely accurate. You know, much as I love Slipknot, it's absolutely true to say that almost all of their albums are a bit too long. They could all do with yeah. being a bit 
shorter uh and it's kind of like well they have nine members it's like yeah they clearly just don't know when to stop (laughs) well and it's interesting because like uh uh, this is probably a good place to say that I I do not have the same affection for this album that you do, even after having given given it several sure, listens. Sure. And um, that is one of the things that I feel about this album is that it's a little long in the tooth. Although a lot of that is sort of filler, you know, like some of the longer songs, you got the hidden tracks and stuff like that. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, for the most part, their songs are not like ridiculously long. So it's not no, like just each individual song. So many songs. Exactly. And I think that's where, <laughs> you know, they could have they could have uh done with maybe cutting one or two tracks here or there, but um but yeah, they're very interesting to me and and you know, when you talked about sort of new metal and their connection to it, there the thing that stuck out to me as I was listening to this album is that my entire perception of this album is through the lens of other bands that I hear when I'm listening to Slipknot. Um, right. And so for me, I didn't, I'm, I did not hear this as like them sort of having this revolutionary change in what was happening at the time. I more heard them as kind of rehashing a lot of the stuff that I had heard, almost some of the criticisms that were levied against uh, King's X in the album that we just discussed are, are things that I felt about this album when I was listening to it is just that I've heard a lot of this stuff before, at least bits and pieces of it from different people, and I think those people might have done it better than these guys are doing it here. And overall, the album to me has kind of a feel of throwing, you know, throwing everything against the wall and sort of seeing what sticks. And that may just be because this is their first album, and so it has that sort of buildup of songs that they'd probably been working on for a long time, and also, you know, once they get in the recording studio, really trying to fill out the album and stuff like that. So a lot of first albums have that feel to it like there's not one necessarily one particular defined sound because the band is still finding itself and so um so i got a little bit of that of this album but the thing that that really stuck out to me was that ross robinson is the producer on this album and he is considered to be the godfather of new metal and when you look at the albums that he had a hand in whether producing engineering yep. From the early... Well, there's your, there's your corn connection. Yes. And so I was going to start there because when you look at the album... So he... I believe his first album was Concrete from Fear Factory. That was the first one that he was the producer on. But when you look at what he had done for that period of the mid to late 90s, he had Korn's debut album in 1994. Then he... Uh, other ones, Adrenaline from the Deftones in 1995. Uh, let's see. Life is Peachy from Korn. Roots from Sepultura. I mean, talk about an album that yep. a lot of people think so. Change thing. $3 Bill Y'all from Limp Biscuit in 1997. Yep. Soulfly in 1998. Uh, Hard to Swallow from Vanilla Ice in 1998. <laughs> uh, that, one, that one was the outlier. Uh, the Burning Red by Machine Head in 99. And then Slipknot's album in 99. So, you know, he, yep. he is considered to be, um, and Jonathan Davis is considered to be very much connected to the, to the new metal sort of sound as well, obviously. But... He is, you know, uh, referred to sometimes as the godfather of new metal, Ross Robinson, and he is the one who put this album together. So as I was, and I didn't know that when I was listening well, to this album. Um, but what, what's interesting there, I mean, d- just a quick aside, The Burning Red, uh, that's, uh, that could be on Unjustly Maligned. That's an album that uh, a lot of Machine Head fans really don't like uh-huh. because it is, it is a little bit new metal. It has some rapping. It has some groove in it and stuff. I really like it. 
I think it's a fucking great album. Um, but a lot of people blamed Ross Robinson for that because it didn't sound like any other uh, Machine Head album. The thing is that I think some people miss, uh, and this is why I mentioned this now, is because bands seek out producers sometimes. And I'm pretty sure that, uh, that Machine Head sought out Ross Robinson to make that particular sure. album because they wanted to do something different and Slipknot absolutely sought out Ross Robinson to produce their debut. They knew who he was. They knew what he was capable of and the sort of albums that he made. And they literally sought him out because they figured that he would understand them, that he wouldn't go, what the fuck is this? I don't know what to do. Right. You know? Uh, and he said about producing this album that he saw it. And he, I know he said this about other albums he's made as well including Soulfly, for example, that he didn't see it as his mission to kind of help them write their songs and stuff like some producers do, but more to just kind of capture what the band sounds like live on a record. Um, and, you know, and I think that, I think anybody who's listened to this album would get that because if you know anything about Slipknot, you know that their live shows, especially in the early days, were utter chaos right um that, which is what happens when you get nine people on a you know six by nine foot stage <laughs> right right and dress like they're coming out of a fun house or something like that yeah. like the whole the whole stick at a time where um one of the things i do appreciate about these guys is that they're bringing that theatricality to yes. their performances at a time where that was not cool you know this was a time where a lot of that stuff had been sort of stripped down. I mean, of course, you had like Marilyn Manson, obviously, who still kind of kept that alive, but they... Right, but he was seen more on the sort of goth industrial correct. side of things. And so, yeah. you know, as someone who grew up listening to, you know, your Alice Coopers and your Wasps and stuff like that, like that, t- to me, like I always miss that. And and I, I felt like, especially like as the 80s went by, a lot of that theatricality sort of went away. Even the bands that were doing it stopped doing it. You know, Kiss, right. Kiss took their makeup off and, and you know, uh, Wasp, you know, started throwing, stopped throwing hamburger meat at the crowd when they were, when they were playing and stuff like that. And so you lost a lot of that. So the idea of them having this um, sort of horror movie theatricality to their performances, I really dig that, obviously, as a horror fan as well. So, so I appreciate what they're bringing with that. And, and I think that also informs my sort of listening of them because uh, it, it, there, there is a level to me of real theatricality to their music that we can talk oh, about yeah, the, when we get into the individual tracks. Yeah, there, are, but, there are parts of this album that sound like a horror movie soundtrack. Sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, but I just thought that the Ross Robinson thing was really interesting because you, you can almost see this as one of the things that I read about Ross Robinson is that he was, um, he got upset with the new metal tag later on because it says that he, he felt that bands after those early bands became complacent and didn't expand on the style that he had helped create with that first album from Korn. So in some ways, yep. this Slipknot album is almost like, I don't want to call it a comeback album for him, because you look at the albums that he's produced, and they're all very well-known albums, a lot of these ones, but this, you could see that he comes, you know, 1994... In terms of taking new metal to a new level, yeah. You know, know, 94, he's got the Korn debut album, he comes to Slipknot in 99, and maybe sees an opportunity to help advance the genre a little bit, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And they talk a lot about his his sort of um, style of production, which is really to push the bands emotionally when they're recording to really kind of get the absolute most out of them. He he almost sounds like he's one of those, 
you know, directors that likes to piss his actors off and stuff like that and really right. get them, <laughs> you know, get their raw, you know, takes on camera and stuff like that. It seems like that's sort of his MO from some of the stuff that I've read about them. So yep. when you think well, about I'm that talking and about... you think about the the sort of energy that you hear on this album, interesting stuff. Right. Well, and talking about rawness, um, the other thing, like talk, you know, like I said, he said that he wanted to capture their live energy uh, on record. And one of the ways that he did that, apart from the, the sort of emotional pushing, was just the speed. Like, this is, like I said, there are nine members in this band. So let's just quickly go through them. We have a turntablist, that's Sid Wilson. We have a regular drummer, that's Joey Jordison. We have two percussionists. Chris Fain and Sean Crane, who clown. Uh, we have uh, one bassist, Paul Gray, two guitarists, Jim Root and Mick Thompson, a sampler, uh, Craig Jones, who literally just plays keyboards and samples and stuff because there are so many of them in the sound. Yep. And then uh, vocalist, obviously, Corey Taylor, the guy that most people know from the band. So that's an enormous amount of percussion because the way that Sid Wilson plays the turntables, a bit like we were saying about Mr. Hahn in um uh uh Lincoln Park, yeah. Joe 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 Hahn plays is as a percussive element. And that's what Sid Wilson does a lot of the time. Not always, but you know, probably 90% of his turntabling is adding a percussive element to the sound. So this is why they're such a heavy percussive band. But famously uh, Robinson has said, and nobody's disputed this, that they recorded the drum tracks, including percussion, I believe, for the whole album, the whole of this album, in three days. Which is insane. Three days. To, and when you consider how much drumming and percussion is on this album, that is nuts. Absolutely nuts. And that's one of the ways that you can get that kind of raw energy and, you know, that feeling of chaos and, yeah, rawness and heaviness into a record is by not over-recording and over-producing it to the nth degree. Right. And and I think that really comes across. And that's one of the things I like about this record is that it does have bits that you think, oh, that's not very clean. You know, that's not very, you know, th th this is a bit chaotic, but that's kind of the appeal of it to me. Right. I, I would agree with that. I mean, there's definitely a garage band feel to some of the songs on this album and also a feel of just kind of leaving it all out there. You know, and there's even, you know, pieces where you you can hear almost like the the uh, exasperated breathing after a particular track or something like that, where it, they clearly have just kind of put it all out there on on a particular song. So I, I think he did a good job of capturing that energy. I mean, the one thing that to me is consistent through this album is the cathartic element of it. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know, it's basically a megaphone of emotion. Yeah, <laughs> you know the entire time and so it, it's like a fire hose you know from the the second that it starts until the second that it's over and so that to me is its most interesting element is the consistent level of energy that it brings yeah which There's, is what makes um, it memorable to me talking about catharsis reminds me of i've just found it there was one of the um reviews at the time for all music was uh the lyrics that are discernible are not generally quotable on a family website and suffice it to say that the members of slipknot are not impressed with their fathers their hometown almost anything else right no no absolutely <laughs> i mean it, usually like i'll go through and i did a couple times on this one and, and kind of pull different lyrics that really stuck out to me or, or something like that but it is um it's there's a theme here and it's that yeah. life's not great and we're pretty angry. And so right. that kind of well, carries throughout the entire album. 
but also the, the, this love of horror movies, you know, that is a genuine, I mean, uh, Sean Crayon, you know, is now a director as well. And he's a, a long time, you know, very well-established horror aficionado. So is Joey Jordison. That's one of the things they bonded over uh, in Des Moines. And there's a lot of that through the album. Like I say, parts of this album sound like a horror movie soundtrack. And some of the songs are, I mean, it is all cathartic, as you say, but some of them are not cathartic in the sense of i'm going to sing about how terrible my life is and how much i hate my parents no, some of them are but, i'm a serial killer right yeah. in the sense of like i'm going to create this fictional drama yeah. and sing about how you know how i'm killing people yeah. left right and center and stuff yeah it's uh and as, as you said the theatrical you know they're not unaware of that uh, i'm ran through the members actually i should mention there was also a guy called josh brainard who was one of their original guitarists and he recorded a lot of the guitars on this album uh, but then quit uh, during the recording for reasons that have never been fully explained as far as I know. Um, it's not it's never been alleged that he was fired. He, uh, But all he has ever said is that uh, things were going in directions that he did not like. Interesting. Go figure. I mean, you know, how more vague can you be? Um, well, and I think it would be shocking to me if the behind the scenes of this band was all uh, peaches and cream roses you yeah. know what i mean because <laughs> i don't think you can bring even if it's not entirely always genuine you can't bring that level of energy to this music without people having some baggage or without conflict or without i mean even just lo- reading about the production of this album and the recording of this album and then them being pushed and stuff like that like it wasn't it wasn't like they were all high-fiving and kind of hanging around and, and hugging each other during the recording of this. It sounded like this was a pretty emotional experience for them as they recorded this album as well. And so when you couple that with the subject matter and the force of the music that they're creating, like you could imagine with that many people as well, it's not, it's not always going to be copacetic. It's not a walk in the park. No, right. absolutely. Um, and you've, I mean, the history of this band has been one of internal conflict. Uh, you know, to the point where they've reached a level now. And uh, ironically and tragically, it seems that what it took was the death of one of the founder members, which was Paul Gray, yeah. the bassist. He died a few years ago, uh, just before they, and then they recorded their most recent album. And it se- sounds like, it seems like it took that to make them all sort of realize, okay, we don't always get along, but what we make here is more than the sum of its parts. Right. And it is valuable both to us and our fans, and we should stop dicking around and just sort of, you know, just live with that and get on with it. Right. Um, Which, as I say, it's tragic that it took something like that to make them realise that, but they do seem to have reached a place now where they've realised, holy shit, we're elder statesmen. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we're no longer the young pissy kids literally punching one another on stage and stuff. Uh, You know, we are now the elder statesmen of a whole genre of metal. It's crazy. Well, because their their demo came out in 96, so they're over 20 years now since they put out, you know, their initial music. And so, yeah, I mean, that if you can be around for two decades, you've basically... And have the enormous success that a band like Slipknot has had. Yeah. Sure. It's, uh, and you, if you can survive through that and that, that, you know, I don't mean that in a distasteful way talking about uh, Paul Gray, but if you can survive that as a band, that's, but literally, too. You know, I mean, just, just because of the, the hazards of the, the oh, lifestyle. And there has been substance uh, abuse issues. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just yeah. lasting 20 years in the metal scene is 
amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things before, just quickly before we get to the track by track, one of the other things that I think you can credit this album with, and this, this may be slightly controversial to some listeners, but I think you can credit Slipknot's success, which in turn can be traced back basically to this album, to a lot of the way in which, uh, extreme music in the modern mainstream, again, mainstream metal scene has become acceptable and accepted uh not solely responsible you know i'm not trying to claim that they did it all by themselves obviously but i think because this album is so heavy so raucous uh and you know it has that sound and because also the the band themselves joey jordison in particular uh you know has very sort of if you read the interviews with him he knows he's black metal and he's death metal no question um i think it really helped open up acceptance of death black and extreme metal yeah in the again outside of the niche because those things are way more popular in the metal scene than they were 20 years ago these days you know it is not it used to be 20 years ago if you said oh yeah i'm into you know such and such black metal uh bands people would go either go who or they'd look at you as if you'd grown a second head and like jesus christ stay away from me you weirdo you know I remember, whereas now yeah that's just you know, you go, oh, yeah, I, I, I really like the new Metallica album. And by the way, have you heard this new black metal right. thing? It's great. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think a couple of things about that. And, and um, yeah, I, to me, like Slipknot is one of those things where, it, and I haven't fully formed this thought, but it's almost like they attracted kids and, and initial listeners with the theatrics and the catharsis, and then maybe they stuck around for the music and got exposed to other types of music as well that they might not have otherwise been into. You know what I mean? So I think in that way, they kind of sucked people in, and then they became fans of uh, some of those other type of music as well, as opposed to people who were long-established, like, you know, death metal fans who then found right. Slipknot and said, oh, these guys are the next big thing. To me, because, oh, sure. because yeah. I remember at the time when, and I've mentioned on the show before, like I was running group homes for teenagers and stuff like that. Uh, I remember specifically that uh, Slipknot and System of a Down were two bands that uh, the kids were super into that I was working with at the time. And it was because of the, uh, it was because of the energy and it was because yeah. of the catharsis and stuff like that. And so, um, so yeah, that that's kind of where I where I think about that in terms of them sort of bringing people in who who sort of stick around for that kind of stuff because th- to me what pulled me through this entire album was that cathartic nature of it and the the energy of it. You know, that that's what um kind of pulled me through this album even for songs that I maybe wasn't necessarily enjoying or tracks that I just couldn't get into. The thing that was consistently there was the energy and I think that's that's something that there have been other types of music. I would even put Slayer in that sometimes. When I first started listening to Slayer, it wasn't because I thought they were amazingly musically talented, other than maybe Dave Lombardo, who was just the most amazing drummer of all time. But it was just the sheer energy that they were yeah. bringing, as opposed to you know your Megadeth or your Metallica, who I thought was more technically... More clinical. Yes, exactly. And so... Yeah. Um, 
Right, early Slayer did kind of sound chaotic in places because it was so fast for the time, you know, like faster than anything most people had heard before. Uh, and the guitars, as we've talked about, the guitar solos are just ridiculous, you know. <laughs> Right, <laughs> no, chaotic notes everywhere um and i remember the first time i heard this album when i did as I say i got the cd and the first time i put it on the my first thought was what the fuck is going on with these drums right it sounds like there are half a dozen guys hitting every drum at once all at the same time what the fuck is going on and that wasn't a bad thing but it was this kind of like this is just madness it, like it there's does, no it takes some time for that to settle in on you right because yeah. it's just really uh, kind of overwhelming when you first start listening to it but the the thing i i also wanted to add was you mentioned how they kind of uh, opened the door to the mainstream a little bit to to kind of explore some of this music this album I, I read a quote from them, and I don't have it in front of me, but the, the album peaked at 51 on the Billboard 200 chart in the U.S., which uh, and then it went on to become double platinum. It was voted the best debut album of the last 25 years by Metal Hammer magazine. And so it was very well thought of and was very popular at the time. And, um, and yeah, so I think your point about them sort of opening the door, and there was a quote from one of them, and I don't know if it was Joey or if it was Corey, that was basically saying, you know, when we showed up on the billboard chart there was nothing like that on the billboard chart oh absolutely not you know we they think of themselves as having opened that door for a lot of other bands or exposed uh their audience to other types of music as well and that's kind of where it brought me back to you know working with the kids of like that there was something about that energy that that new listeners kind of hung on to and then once they got into the metal scene and started exploring around there was a a lot of other stuff for them to find as well which i think you know we've all had our bands that sort of hooked us in but i think with slipknot in some cases it might have been the energy before the music that initially hooked people in sure well and one of the consistent themes uh you know sort of in interviews and stuff down the years with slipknot is that they know how good they are like there's no sort of false oh, modesty here, uh, you know. Yeah, they, I got that. They pretty know, clearly. <laughs> yeah, they know that they're really fucking good and have been really influential and are really important, and they're not ashamed of that. At the same time, however, they are also very generous in talking about other bands that they dig. Do you know what I mean? With yeah, the caveat, yeah, yeah. they're like, well, they're, they're not as good as us, but we really like this band or that band, or I grew up listening to these bands or whatever. Um, so, and I think again that helps people. We've talked about this with the grunge thing, you know, where like bands like Soundgarden and even Nirvana were like bigging up people like Led Zeppelin and stuff. And suddenly this whole generation of kids who got into grunge, right? you know, got, because of Nirvana now went and sought out old Led Zeppelin records and Black Sabbath records. And so there is definitely an element of that. And I think it's always commendable when a really successful band does that sort of thing and is generous and says, well, actually, I'm really digging this at the moment, but knowing full well that their fans are then going to go and seek out sure. that band and that music. And I think that's, as I say, I think that's commendable because, you know, there's some bands that don't do that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's some bands who don't see that as their role or responsibility, even if they are elder statesmen, to kind of help give that next generation of bands or, or even bands that are, you know, criminally underrated well, or overlooked, right. you know, that uh, sort of helping hand. And you see that a lot when you see who big bands take out as their undercard you know, who they have come tour with them and open, you know, for them and stuff like that. And you'll see that there are some bands who are extremely popular who try to really um, select bands that they think deserve a wider audience and bring them out with them on tour. And they put thought into that. And that's always kind of cool to see as opposed to, 
bands who sort of let the the management or whatever just match them up with a couple of other bands and and bring them out. It's always nice to see bands who sort of see themselves as these um you know these these sort of gateways to other types of music or other bands that are underrated um like it was cool to see and i don't know if metallica specifically chose them but it was cool to see metallica bring volbeat out on their latest tour and volbeat's not an unknown band but volbeat to me is a band that i don't think is appreciated enough and so do with more exposure absolutely and so you know touring with metallica on their stadium tour uh, you're not going to get more exposure than that (laughs) like i'm sure there's a lot of first time volbeat you know, uh, audience members seeing that band play. And so that's kind of cool. Yeah. It's the whole paying it forward thing, you know, and most it's most bands have benefited from that. Most successful bands have benefited from that largesse by another band at some point or another. Uh, And so, yeah, that's why it's nice when, you know, because not all of them do, as I say, when some of those bands in turn go, well, look, people helped us out in this way. We should help out other bands in a similar way. Um, yeah, I just think that's, as I say, it's kind of, there's no mistaking that Slipknot, like I say, are not short of ego, but at the same time, it is, I think it's worth, you know, pointing out and commending that they do also, you know, talk about other bands and big up other bands, knowing, surely knowing that their fans are then going to go, oh, I'll listen to that band as yeah, well then. which is um, cool because a lot of the stuff that I read about them, they just come across as dicks. And so it's kind of right. cool. <laughs> which is it's true, It's kind of yeah. cool to, uh, <laughs> to see that they actually try to pay it back a little bit because they're, and I'm sure that uh, part of that is the media and part of that is the sort of uh, persona that they've put out there as a band that fits right into their personality but um but yeah i mean the but, actions oh, oh. speak louder than words and exposing other bands to a larger audience is a big action when you are a big band absolutely and and i think some of it also comes from being a band that you know was built out of a scene where nothing was happening and then you know went on fairly quickly to more or less take over the world i right. think that's going to give that you feeling of building it yourself exactly you know, that's going to give this. you a certain amount of this. like screw you yeah, yeah you know, totally. like we exactly we nobody did helped us um, you know but but we're going to help other people even though you know we had to build this entire thing ourselves is i'm sure what the thought is yeah yeah absolutely the only other thing i wanted to mention in general before we get into it because i think i've mentioned this on the show before is there's a persistent question uh although used to be i'm not so sure if there is now but certainly when they started there was a persistent question about around slipknot about whether or not they actually were talented musicians because they make such a raucous noise and you know they detune so heavily and if you're not listening carefully uh, especially to some of the tracks on this album it would be very easy to just think that you're listening to a wall of sort of unpracticed noise um now obviously if you listen closely you realize that's not the case but so that was an issue and i as i say i think i've mentioned this before on the show i'm not sure but when i worked at future um they uh, and around about the time that I started freelancing for Metal Hammer as well, they basically bought a few magazines, a few music magazines to expand the portfolio. One of them was Metal Hammer. One of them, I think, was Classic Rock. I'm pretty sure Classic Rock was bought in. They didn't start it. But then they also started one um, called Total Guitar, which I think is still going. And uh, they were on the same floor as Metal Hammer. And there was a practice. I don't know whether um, magazines do this anymore, but back then there was a practice of you would put your issue covers, you the proofs of your issue covers up on the wall, normally behind the editor. So, you know, you could literally see the cover of every issue of the magazine you'd put out over the years on the wall. Um, 
and so Total Guitar, you know, had that as well. And I'll never forget, there was one that had, uh, and this was back in the days when magazines used to come with CD cover mounts as well. There was right. one that had Mick Thompson from Slipknot on the front, and the headline was, uh, and ha- bear with me a second here, because I actually found it, finally went out and found uh, the, the an image of this cover, just to sort of prove to myself that I didn't imagine it. Uh, it was Total Guitar Issue 95, from uh april 2002 and it's a big image of jim thompson in his mask holding his guitar giving the horns and it just says slipknot you said he couldn't play we asked him to prove you wrong on the cd and that to me i mean firstly just from a magazine sort of person's point of view what a brilliant headline like i have that was 15 years ago and i still because i've never read the article or heard the cd i still want to it's such. So what you're saying is that the, album cover invented clickbait headlines, right? Yeah, kind yeah. of. <laughs> it's but it's perfect. It's like, oh my god, how can you You'll not never want... guess what we heard when we said that he couldn't play guitar? <laughs> exactly. How can you not want to read that article or listen to that oh, CD? You know what a fantastic headline. Perfect. Um, anyway, like I say, I haven't actually heard it. I'd love to. If anybody out there has it, please let me know. Um, but that's but the an, point. It, no, go ahead. I was just going to say the point being that there was this perception that they were not talented musicians. Clearly that's not the case. And if you go on YouTube and look for, there are videos of recording sessions, uh, guitar specifically recording sessions for, of Slipknot of of Mick Thompson and Jim Root recording stuff. And if you watch them play and lay down tracks, holy crap, they are, no, they're not playing Ingvi Malmsteam, you know, soaring thousand notes a minute, fret wanking stuff, but they could because if you watch these are the most amazing uh, technically talented guitarists just incredible but because they're so detuned because of the style of music that they are devoted to playing unless you're paying attention you wouldn't necessarily realize it right and that's yeah i mean there's a lot of parallels to that right when you you know you see an actor that's been in a lot of genre movies and they're like oh they're not that great of an actor and then you actually see them in something that's a little bit more dramatic and you're like holy crap wow they are really they have a lot more range than i thought that they did or or even singers who do cookie monster vocals and then you hear them sing clean and you're like holy crap that dude's or you know woman's got an amazing voice and so yeah i think that it's very easy to fall into that trap of listening to a brand of music and thinking that you know the talent level of the creators behind it when for this thing like to me there is there's such a conscious choice to create a sound for slipknot with that many participants in it with that level of energy and creating this overwhelming sort of cathartic chaos that the to even make a decision about the 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 sort of uh talent level of anyone but maybe the percussionists in this particular band right who, you know are always <laughs> you know very clear in the mix i think is uh you can't because because they're making a choice and they're all contributing to this particular sound but yeah that's not you would never be able to discern that his level of talent from the music that they're creating at least from a technical standpoint you know what i mean so so Absolutely, that's kind of cool yeah. that that they you know kind of put the spotlight on him and and showed that yeah of course he could play this stuff but this is the music that he's choosing to play and he's contributing to something that's bigger than himself and i think that to me is what uh you have to take slipknot as a whole 
Yes. You know, there are a lot of bands that I grew up listening to, especially hair metal bands, where you can say there is one supremely talented individual in this band. And it, it, a lot of times it was the guitar right, player. Right, he's carrying the band. Correct. Yeah, a lot yeah. of times it was the, the rock star guitar player, you know, or maybe it was the soaring vocalist or something like that. And, and you know, even in the music, other people were just keeping the beat. You know, the rhythm section is not that great. Or, but then you get that one band that has an amazing bass player or something like that. And so I think it was easier, and it is easier with um, music that is less sort of uh sort of chaotic to be able to pick and out layered, yeah. who you think are the, the sort of most talented players but for something like this it's like they're all throwing in and what comes out the other side is you know an amalgamation of everything right right and they're doing it in such like different ways i mean uh, the other standout i think is Corey. we have to talk about Corey taylor's voice i for my money he is one of the best metal vocalists around uh, because he is so versatile he has such power in his voice, both clean and growl, and he can he can clean, he can growl, and he can scream, and he can do all of them, either quiet or really really loud, really powerfully, sure. and it just no matter, and he slips between them so smoothly, and that's not easy, you know. He's yeah, you know, regardless of what you may think of the style of his music or the lyrics or whatever, his just his talent as a vocalist, I think, is extraordinary. Yeah. And, and I can see why maybe he doesn't sing super cleanly on more of this album because it's not necessarily the, what they were going for as the, the overall feel to the album. But when he does, you know, like on a Wait and Bleed or something like that, you can you can really start to appreciate like what his range is. Yeah. Well, and if you want to hear more of him um, singing clean, Stone uh, Sour, he has right? Stone yeah. Sour, which is the band that he and Jim Root were in before Corey basically joined Slipknot and then brought Jim Root over with him. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, um, that is not all of it, but most of it is very clean, powerful, melodic singing from Corey. And uh, it's still very heavy stuff. Sure. But, you know, just a, a, that sort of vocal style. And yeah, you know, that will really demonstrate. He, like I say, he's such a talented vocalist and but be, again because much like mick thompson because of the style of music that slipknot plays doesn't always get recognized for it um but you know that's kind of that just comes with making this sort of music and i'm sure that they knew that when they were you know they knew what they were getting into <laughs> right and they knew that sort of the 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 sum was greater than its parts and they, and the, exactly. the statement that they were making as a band with all of them together was going to be more powerful than any one of them showing off their particular talents, you know, and, and having right. that be the focal point of the band. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's get into the album then. Uh, so like I say, 1999, the original release had 15 songs and lasted 60 minutes. Uh, the release that we're going to talk about, this UK release, has 19 songs yep. and lasts 72 minutes. Uh, now, on both of those, several minutes of that is silence and nonsense at the end, uh, which does sort of bring the running time down a bit. But that's still a lot of songs. And as I mentioned at the start, there have been several editions of this album because there is uh, there are two tracks in the middle of the original release, Frail Limb Nursery and Purity, which were the subjects of a copyright lawsuit uh, from the band against basically what happened was, or <laughs> even what happened is kind of, you know, disputed by different stories over time. But it seems what happened was that uh, Corey visited a website that purported to be a true crime website, read a story about an, a girl that had been abducted and then called Purity Night and then wrote the lyrics to the song 
purity. Um, uh, and Frail Limb Nursery also references that same, which leads into purity, also references that same thing. Then, and here's the dodgy bit, after the album was enormously successful, the guy who uh, made that website sued them because it turns out it wasn't true. It was actually all fictional stuff, but he presented it as if it was true and claimed that they had violated his copyright huh. in recording this song. And so rather than go through all the legal shenanigans at the time, they just reissued the album without those tracks and with a substitute track on at the end instead. Um, what was it? They, uh, that, that, uh, in an effort to prevent, I'm reading from Wikipedia here, in an effort to prevent the entire album from being pulled, they removed Purity and Frail Limb Nursery, uh, re released slightly remastered standard and digipack versions of the album, replacing both tracks with Me Inside instead, okay. which is also on the uh, UK version of the album that we've got. But the version that we've been listening to does also have Frail Limb Nursery and Purity, as well as Me Inside. Um, and Purity was then released on the 10th anniversary edition of the self-titled debut album. So presumably they sorted out whatever legal issues there were. Honestly, I kind of read that and I'm, I call bullshit. That's like, I'm sorry, but you had like dozens of bands in the seventies writing lyrics about Michael Moorcock novels and right. the Lord of the Rings and shit like that, you know, and nobody ever sued them. Saying Some that bands they'd made entire careers off of it. <laughs> yeah, it's just the whole thing just stinks to high heaven for me. But as a result, there are something like about five different versions of this album floating around out there. So, but it kind of all adds to the legend of this album as well. It does, yeah. you know, it gives it <laughs> gives it that uh, that more interesting Wikipedia entry. So, yeah, oh, definitely, yeah. So, but as I say, so for listeners, don't worry if you have a slightly different version of the album. Uh, of, you know you know that we always play samples of the tracks and we'll also name each track as we go through it so you can kind of reconstruct the playlist as it were uh, as we go through it so you know don't worry about it but yeah it is it, this is the thing it's not necessarily a massively long album it's just as we said there are a lot of songs on it even on the original release so many songs and right because their uh, average song is like under four minutes so it's not like the, right. the songs are these epically I mean maybe with one exception but yeah it's not um, well, and there are several that are under three minutes. Right, exactly. You know? And there are also two tracks that are just essentially, uh, you know, sort of sample sound effects, sure. atmospheric stuff that are less than a minute long. So, yeah, it's, uh, it is just the, the sheer number of songs and the way they hammer at you <laughs> that makes this feel album feel longer than it really is, I, I think, anyway. Right. Um, so... The first track is uh, 742-617-0002-7. Which is a ridiculous title for uh, a track, but it is, for people who don't know, that was the barcode of the demo CD that they recorded and released uh, called Mate, Feed, Kill, Repeat. Interesting. Uh, a couple of years before this album was released. And is the soundbite someone's review of that album? Uh, no. Uh, they, <laughs> they, <laughs> no, I think it, the, the sample in it is from uh, a Charles Manson documentary, I think. Okay. Uh, years ago, Joey Jordison claimed that it was Corey's voice just like digitally altered, but I've listened to this many times. Yeah, that does not, not sound like no. Corey to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's ridiculous, but there is 
somebody, I read somewhere that they claim to have actually kind of bought that barcode because they also have that barcode on each of their jumpsuits, their boiler suits oh, okay. that they wear on stage as well. And yeah, I read that they claim to have actually kind of effectively bought that barcode and taken it off the market. I'm not sure how that's even possible. I'm not sure if that's a thing you can do, but you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's literally, this is, it's only 36 seconds long. It is just, you know, a repeated sample, some weird atmospherics, but it does set you up for, oh, okay, this is going to be a weird sort of horror movie style album. Yeah. Um, immediately I'm thinking white zombie when I exactly. you know, listen to this, which, uh, which is one of the things that endears white zombie to me, because I think their, their choices of samples are amazing on oh, a lot of their stuff and so superb, yeah. yeah and and this was a good one to sort of give you that horror movie unsettling sort of vibe right the way it repeats and they change the pitch and they speed up and slow it down and all that and the actual uh like weird sound going yeah. on in the background yeah you know it is effective and yeah leads straight into uh the first track sick is actually parentheses SIC close parentheses which for those of you who don't know is uh, a term often used in journalism to uh, it's often misinterpreted as meaning spelling is correct it's actually a latinate phrase which i can't remember but uh, it basically is used to follow a phrase that has been that was originally misspoken or misspelt and the journalist is repeating it verbatim so it's there to show you that this isn't right, the journalist. I, it's not me making, making a mistake. mistake. It's the it, yeah. This was how it was said. Right, but of course, it also sounds like sick. So it's a nice little you know sure. play on Works words perfectly. Um, and god damn the intro the intro to this song i and we've talked about this many times before with things like it's a bit like the intro to the uh stomp four four two the anthrax album that i love. I just love that right from the word go it's detuned to hell it's percussive as fuck it's chugging it's heavy it from the very first note of this song it's like this is the album you're about to listen to yes uh it's got everything in it it's even got samples and some scratching crazy percussion going all over the place it is a brilliant distillation the first like 20 seconds of this is what you're in for It, it is the album in a nutshell yeah I mean, it basically gives you everything that you can expect from this album you get within this song. So in that way, it is a perfect opener because not only is it super aggressive and sort of punches you in the face, but also 
it is uh it gives you exactly what you can expect exactly yeah yeah and and Corey goes straight in with like a growl voice as well like no clean or anything just bang straight in like i say it's so i i love it for that reason because it is so demonstrative of the band so aggressive uh and just so loud as well but and also i think it's a really great song i do too actually it's probably one of my three favorite songs on the album um, oh cool but here's where I'm probably going to piss off some of our listeners here, because th- through a lot of these songs, like and I, I kind of alluded to this before, um, when I hear these guys, I don't feel like they're that far away from Corn and Limp Biscuit. Like I wasn't listening to this song saying, "Oh my God, these guys have taken what Corn and Limp Biscuit did and taken it like fifty, you know, miles farther than it is." It, you know, especially. And this is where I'll really piss some people off, especially if you go back and listen to Limp Biscuit's first album, the three dollar bill, y'all, which is before right. everybody hated them because Fred Durst, <laughs> you know, well, and it's much more metal than it is much uh, more metal groove. And yeah. the drums on that album to me are a lot more tinny and metallic that that whole Pantera influence that we talked about, you know, a couple of episodes ago. Um, so when you look at if you. I went back and listened to the 1994 Corn album and Limp Bizkit's first album as I was listening to this album, and they are a lot closer together than I think time has allowed people to believe. Um, and I'm not saying that, that that this isn't heavier than those albums or anything like that, but that there seems to be this sort of retroactive painting of Corn and Limp Bizkit as almost more rock than as opposed to metal, whereas Slipknot, like with Slipknot being the metal version of those bands. You know what I mean? That's, that's kind of what I see in a lot of the discourse about those three bands is like, yeah, those guys kind of started, you know, the sort of, um, the sort of new metal or, or were part of that early version of new metal. And then Slipknot came along and they were just so much heavier than those guys and stuff like that. And I think when you compare first albums, they're not that far apart. That's just my opinion in going back and listening to them. So, so like, I love this song. Like, this is one of my three favorite songs on the albums, but I wasn't listening. I was listening to it and thinking of Corn and Limp Bizkit at the same time. Interesting. I mean, I do disagree. Uh, and not just with the perspective of time, because as I say, I was listening to this fairly soon after it came out. And I do like not so much Limp Bizkit's first album. I've got it. You know, it's fine, but I'm not a huge fan. Um, but Corn's first album, I really like. I genuinely... Oh, me too. I, you know, that, that, that I liked it at the time. I like it now. It was a great album, but I do think this is different enough to merit, you know, the sort of the accolade that it gets in, in that sense because sure. it is so much heavier, the so much more percussive. The guitars. The one criticism I've always had of Corn is that their guitars just aren't very heavy, um, and you know the guitars on this are really fucking heavy. <laughs> right, <laughs> really whereas like heavy. West Borland's guitars in Limp Bizkit are much uh, are much more traditional, I think, than a lot of, I wouldn't call him a traditional guitarist, but certainly um, in terms of riffs and things like that, more um, yes. traditional than than those other bands. But yeah, I think you, you hit it, percussion. The one area where I feel like this band is light years farther out than any of the other bands that I just mentioned is when it comes to percussion. There is a machine gun style to the percussion and because it has so many different layers to it, like it's, it sounds different than anything else. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've got Joey who is just an amazing drummer and, uh, Joey, if people don't know, Joey stood in for Lars Ulrich on a few, uh, Metallica. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I don't know whether he stood in for him on whole shows or whether he just sort of joined them for the occasional sure. song. 
Uh, this is a few years ago, back when Joey was still insolent, not for one thing. Um, well, it's funny because you can uh, hear there's definitely an, uh, one influence on one of the songs here. I made a note about it, and it uh, actually, I think it's the it's the Eeyore song at the end. Um, oh, where right, you totally yeah, yeah. feel that, but yeah, I mean, he's amazing. Yeah, right. And I was going to say, if you go and like look for videos of those songs of him playing with Metallica on YouTube, and yes, he has done one with them because he's, you know, he's amazing. Joey Jordison is a goddamn machine. Um, you know, just an incredible drummer. But then, yes, you you combine that somebody who is as talented with as him as a drummer with two percussionists. Yeah. Like I said, two, not just one, but two percussionists and uh, a turntablist doing scratching percussion as well. And it is just nuts. Like you've never heard anything right. like it's it. A, Even it's when that whole fire hose thing, you know, like the right, fire well, hose has been thrown open. Yeah, I mean, Ministry famously used to have two drummers yep. uh, when they performed live. Maybe they still do, I don't know. Um, and that sounded great, but those drummers were basically playing the same thing. Right. They were just sort of doubling down on the sound. These guys are not playing the same thing. <laughs> Whenever there is a gap in the drumming, somebody is banging away on a tom-tom or, like, hammering a trash can or yeah, some exactly. shit. <laughs> to get a sound in there and it, that's what and contributes to the chaotic sound and i love it what's interesting about that too is like when you you talk about banging on a trash can which is basically what lars's drums sound like during saint anger and um <laughs> and alone that sounds like shit and so but here where you have basically three different styles going on at the same time i think it's very additive you know what i mean like yes. if it was just one of those things I'd, it wouldn't work in the way that it works with the layers. And, and we're so used to having like guitars and vocals layered. We're not used to having drums layered, you know, like, like these guys are right. bringing it. So that, that to me is somewhat of a um, very innovative approach to what these guys are doing. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Um, and then, I mean, and the way this track ends as well, I mean, I love the breakdown, which has, you know, lots of like ro- low rhythmic scratching uh-huh. sound effects. Again, you know, trash cans being hammered, that sort of thing. But then in the ending, you kind of return almost to the intro of the album because you've got, I, I love the way that it's effectively kind of saying, oh no, that wasn't just the intro because lots of albums, let's be, let's be real, lots of uh, metal and sort of industrial albums, especially in the nineties would have that kind of, they'd start off with 30 seconds of some weird sound, but then, but then the rest of the album would be conventional metal industrial, whatever. And I like the fact that this very first track ends in a way that says, no, 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 that wasn't just the intro. This horror movie shit is like a part of the whole album and you are going to be hearing it a lot. I like the way that it sets that up. Right, right. You're buckled in for the whole ride now. Exactly. Uh, and then it goes into track three, which is called Eyeless.
son Cause he's a phantom, a mystery And that leaves me nothing Many times if you wanted to die It's too late for me All you have to do is get rid of me You can't get out of order with a mother And again, another full-on heavy, just like assault on your ears track. Right, you've um, got sort of the high-pitched, you know, guitar whine in one ear, and then you've got the low rhythm being played on the left. And so they they even they play around with the channels too. Yes, yes, they do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is another album that's definitely worth listening to on headphones because they don't muck around. You know, sort of in, they're not playing around with complexity in terms of the left and right channels and what have you, but the, because there's just so much going on, uh, it can give you a sort of an extra appreciation for how layered everything is if right. you listen to it on the headphones. Um, apparently I read somewhere that, uh, the chorus, this is the one, even if you don't recognize the title, if you've heard Slipknot, you might recognize the chorus, which is the one where he screams, you can't see California without Marlon Brando's eyes. And apparently I read somewhere Corey saying that this was when they went to New York to like sign the record deal with Roadrunner or something. There was some crazy hobo on the street yep. who was shouting this at the band as they I, I put this note down. It says, the song was inspired by the schizophrenic ravings of a street dweller that the band met in New York when they were visiting the offices of Roadrunner to sign their contract. Right. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but it, it makes a good story regardless. Um, I love the intro to the breakbeat intro, almost drum and bass yep. to this, because again, it's kind of like, I mean, there's a nod to things like Corn which were, oh, you know, had that drum and I, like, bass influence. I felt like you had uh, a Limp Biscuit vibe here, but also a, a good Pantera vibe here as well. There's definitely a groove to parts of this song. Yeah, right. And you've got a high-pitched wail coupled with the deep rhythmic yep. guitar, which is kind of a theme throughout the album. And it, it, um, it's the, like in their slower moments, what I think that they do a lot in this album is they they unsettle. They have this... Yes, um, yes. Th- there's definitely this theme of... of uh, of, you know, a scattered mind and, you know, and, and sort of panic and, and, um, insomnia and just, just like, just like an unbalanced mind. And a lot of the times, especially when things slow down, they're sort of playing on that. And so when you have the, the high pitched guitar and the low rumblings at the same time, it, it has this sort of seesaw effect that is unsettling. Yes, absolutely. Um, this is also a good demonstration, this track of what I mentioned before about, uh, the ease with which Corey Taylor moves between clean voice and scream. Sure. Um, you know, it's like I say, that shit is hard, man. I mean, this is a man who is basically in full control of his voice. Uh, and especially at this stage, because he was still a young man when they made this album. Um, and it's just, it's so impressive to me. I also love how talking about sort of the chaos of the drums. I love how the drums in the verses are actually more chaotic than the chorus. Right. Like the chorus drums are actually fairly conventional, but in the verse, it's just nuts. There isn't an empty beat anywhere. They kind of flip that around a lot uh, in a lot of their songs where essentially the the chorus is almost the the break. Where, right. And the, and the verses are the chaos, you know, which is kind well, of interesting. Uh, and I, I've seen... Um, I saw Mick Thompson uh, video interviewed somewhere. I saw a video of it uh, where he is quite, and this is the thing of Mick Thompson. If you <laughs> think of Slipknot, he's the big 
big wide guy at the back wearing the sort of executioner mask uh and he's the one the guitarist on stage of the two of them he's the one who plants his feet crouches over his guitar and just bangs his head the entire time and barely moves uh jim root meanwhile is like a whirling dervish on the other side of the stage and but even mick thompson i've seen him say explicitly we want to write good songs that people will remember and have a hook and are catchy and that you know catchy is not a word (laughs) that you necessarily associate immediately with slipknot but you're right a lot of their verses are actually really catchy and things that will stick in your head and you may even find yourself singing along to and i love that they're not ashamed of that they they don't kind of retreat from that and they say no that's what we want to do because that's what makes a great song right it has to have a differentiator or else it just becomes part of the noise and i i think they do that successfully in some parts and and not so successfully in some parts of this album and i think you know we talked about how long the album is and stuff like that but i think where it works it is because there's something that stays with you from that particular song yeah well and okay so prime example track four is wait and bleed i felt the air rise up in me you're down clear the stone of leaves i wonder out where you can see inside my shell i wait and bleed i felt the air rise up in me kneel down clear the stone of leaves i wonder out where you can see inside my shell i wait and bleed As you said, this was one of the singles from the album. I think this was the second single from the album, uh-huh. and it is one of their best known and one of their catchiest songs, no question. Yeah, and it's kind of because of his spoken song, you know, element to the song. I think that 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 with the with the sort of, um, but it almost sounds like he's reciting a nursery yes, rhyme at first, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Where where he uh, you also have the music that's kind of just underneath that kind of building as it goes and that what i didn't realize about the song is how short it was oh yeah it's two yeah, and a yeah. half minutes long like i would yep. not have guessed that but yeah this was the song that i this was the song i knew from slipknot yeah well it's like um black sabbath's paranoid right you know, that's not even three minutes long either but it's such a good song that you don't kind of don't notice how short it is um and yeah i mean this is a classic slipknot track this is as you say one of the tracks that if you mention slipknot a lot of people will go oh that song um well this is the one and, where you realize like oh this guy's got a really good voice yes you should use yes. it more but also that first verse is quintessential slipknot uh you know when he starts after that because they open with the chorus obviously and then start in with the the chaotic yep. verse as we said and that first verse everything about it lyrics Corey's delivery how heavy it is that first verse you could kind of encapsulate and go 
that is a perfect Slipknot verse uh, to me, in my mind. And it's one of the things that I always first think of when I think of Slipknot. Right. It's the first verse of their song. Here's a good example of what their sound is. Right. Yeah. Right. Not not necessarily the best example, sure. but a very very good example. Yeah. Uh, and I love the imagery of the lyrics as well. This is one where Corey has said that this is supposed to be a story about a guy who regularly dreams that he's bleeding out in the bathtub, and then actually wakes up to find that he is bleeding out in the bathtub, but isn't sure whether he's dreaming it or not. Uh, and that does explain a lot of the lyrics in this, but I'm pretty sure there's more to it because the chorus makes no sense yep. <laughs> whatsoever with that story. So I'm pretty sure there's more to it than that, but it's a nice image. Yeah, it was, again, the song I had the most familiarity with. So I think consequently, as I listened to it this time around, the one I paid, the one that I delved the least deeply into because I was not familiar with every other song on this album. Right, but you were already familiar with this. Yeah. Right. Uh, I will say in in that first verse, there's a line, how the hell did I get here? Sung in the, something about this so very wrong. That's actually kind of, I literally, I will say that sometimes. Like that has entered my vocabulary as a phrase. <laughs> right. It's a whole like Alice in Wonderland sort of thing. <laughs> it's yeah. It's just, there's something about that line. Something about this so very wrong is, I don't know. I, I love it. Again, brilliant encapsulation. Um, okay. So, and then the next track is uh track five is surfacing This is the song where I feel like if you were to say to me, "What what's a Slipknot song if I wanted to get a good idea of like what they bring to the table? This, I'm so glad you said this that. This is a song I would, I would say to them, because certainly from from the chorus standpoint, like it's just pure catharsis. Yeah. I mean, this is probably my favorite track on the album. Uh, and yeah, it is exactly, to me, this is the quintessential early anyway slipknot song like if you know somebody said play me one slipknot song that explains to me what this band are this is the song you play um because it's just yeah it has the lyrical content the delivery uh the 
sound effects, scratching, well, weird atonal guitars, the drums of percussion, everything about it is just, that is Slipknot. Yeah, this is the whole unsettled mind thing, right? Where, again, you have, like, the screeching guitar in yes. one channel and then the, the the sort of lower rhythm elements in the other channel, and it definitely has this, you know, very uh, back-and-forth feel to it. Yep. Yep. And uh, incidentally, I read somewhere, and again, I don't know how true this is necessarily, but I read somewhere that both Clown and Mick Thompson wanted this to be the first single from the track, from the album. Uh, The first single was actually the next song, which we'll talk about in a moment. But they both wanted this to be the first single. Uh, And I can see why, because like I say, I think this is actually, you know, just a perfect, if you only are only going to listen to one song to explain what Slipknot is, it is this track, everything about it. I just would, explains, I would that. you know, what the band is. Yep. Uh, also, I fucking love the the chorus. Oh, it's great! Like that, it's so metal. Yep. Fuck it all. Fuck this world. I, I mean, fuck just, everything that you stand for. Just imagine yourself too, like as a as a teenager looking to find music that captures this oh, particular yeah, point yeah. in your life. I mean, like like this this is a song that I would think of when I said like you know these kids were really latching on to to Slipknot at the time. Like this this is a song where I could see like yep, this one speaks right to that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a track on uh, on Iowa called People Equals Shit, which is kind of <laughs> the same thing. I mean, that has become also an anthem for them. Uh, but that's the same sort of, th- sort of thing. Is like The chorus is literally just him screaming, people equals shit. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, if you're a 14-year-old boy who's kind of feeling misunderstood and alone, <laughs> you know, here you go. <laughs> Yeah. Here are lyrics that perfectly represent how you are feeling right now. Um, yeah, I, I love it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, everybody's heard Servicing and Wait and Bleed. And then uh, everybody's probably heard this one as well, because the next track is was the first single from this album. So that is track six, Spit It Out. Did you never give a damn in the first place? Maybe it's time you want the tables turned. Because in the interest of all of all, they got the problems solved. And the friends is guilty. And I'll get my time away if I had a try. Stop talking wrong. You were dead from the get-go. Been Malberta. Two for God's sake, I scared him. And now that you're dumb enough, I thought always says it never was. Don't measure me to piss and vinegar. Don't tell me I'm smitten. They got fear, you bullshit. Just another dumb blow, jumping up the shit. It's another way to break through the noise. Mother's sick of the sand, you got your pen. Gotta be that way if you want it. Saturday, literal, pathetically, it's bad. Which I must have completely missed because when I listened to it on this album, this song screamed Limp Biscuit to me. Really yeah. interesting. Well, I think part of the reason, because it was the label who said, no, this should be the first single from the album. And I think part of that is because it is so much more obviously new metal. Yep. You know, it really it fits definitely into, is new metal. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's one of the few tracks on this album that you can absolutely, without equivocation, say that is a new metal song. Um, but it's still really good. It's still another Slipknot oh, yeah. classic. No, I didn't dislike it for, by any stretch, but it definitely felt like... But I wonder, you know, because we talked about how the, this album is kind of long, I wonder if it serves the rest of the album in, in terms of what their overall sound is, because this song feels different to me than most of the other songs on this album. Well, part of that may actually be down to the fact that this, I, I don't know for sure, 
this song sounds literally sounds different to the rest of the album. Right. I don't I don't know if it was taken directly from their second demo. Oh, okay. Which was ne- which was never released. That was made basically to give to record labels. Um, but if you look on the credits, this one was basically produced by Joey and uh, somebody else whose name I can't recall. But Ross Robinson was not involved yeah. in the production mixing. No, he was not involved in this track whatsoever. Interesting. And, yeah, and so I. And you can, the guitar sound different, the yeah, drums sound different, absolutely. everything sounds different. Uh, and so I don't know, as I say, if it's actually taken directly from a demo recording. Um, but for some reason, they didn't re-record it in the studio. And I think that's another reason why it feels, like I say, yeah, it's a great song. It's a cla- become a classic song, but it does feel like it almost doesn't belong on this album. Right. And on an album that has, you know, hidden tracks and extra cuts and all that and demos and all that kind of stuff, I mean... I almost feel like it would fit better as one of those as opposed to smack dab in the middle of the album. Right. Except that it is a great song. If it wasn't such a great song, I'd agree with you. Sure. But because it is so good, it's like you you can't relegate that to the back of the album, you know? (laughs) Yeah, no, I hear that. Because like these first six songs, and this again is another theme with Slipknot albums, these first six songs, it's only 20 minutes. Like you could end the album here and you would have 20 minutes of some of the most awesome metal, you know, you've ever heard. Um, everyone's a killer, but then it's after this that things start to be not quite so killer, you know? Uh, and like I said, this is one of my favorite albums ever. I, I love many, most of the tracks on this album, but even I would say, you know, you could probably have lost two or three of these and nobody would cry over it. But I don't think Spit It Out is one of those tracks. I think you do need to have the track on here. I just kind of, I do wish that they'd re-recorded it for, you know, at the same time as making the rest of the album so that it sounded like it fit with the rest of the album. Sure. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why they didn't. Go figure. Because I can't believe that they ran out of time in the studio. Right, right. (laughs) Uh, So, next track is Tattered and Torn. This is kind of let's take a breather time. It basically, is. It, it, it kind of has the feel of an internal monologue, you know, like an in, like an internal conversation, you know, sort of thing. But I, I think it finishes really strong, and it also kind of speaks to the idea that 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 the music is sort of the, getting the bad stuff out, 
sort of thing. That that's yes. kind of the the feel that I got from this song. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, and it, it is again. I keep saying it, but it sort of contributes to the feel that you're almost listening to a horror movie soundtrack, right? Or or the um, like the therapy sessions or or sort of journal entries of someone who is in a treatment facility. You know what I mean? It, it is very atmospheric. Um, this track is, there are people, there are Slipknot fans who complain when every song isn't just a wall of noise. Uh, and, and I'm always confused by that. Cause I'm like, dude, like track seven on the very first album, you know, is a slow qu- starts quiet at any rate. You know, atmospheric, right. weird, noisescape type song. You know, not a traditional just throw everything at the wall song. Um, and yeah, this is the first real example of that. And they do it; they've done it throughout their career. So yeah, I find it really weird. But I do like this track. It's not, you know, you're never going to sort of sing along to it, sure. and uh, it's never it's never going to be a live classic. But I think it does serve that purpose of after, like I say, twenty minutes of some of the most extreme aggressive metal you've ever heard, especially in 1999 to take a breather and say, okay, let's, you know, slow things down a bit. Let's have a breather. And then we'll get back into, you know, the heaviness in a moment. Right. I think it does that really well. So uh, track eight, and this is one of the tracks that was part of that copyright issue and was removed from subsequent pressings is frail limb nursery. long eyelashes fluttering like she was dreaming. She said to him, I lie beyond the screen. And then all of a sudden her head dipped back and she vanished. Gone, gone without a trace. I mean, it's kind of, it's effectively a Silent Hill cutscene. <laughs> it totally is, dude. She Isn't said it? to him, I lie beyond the sea. I'm like, oh, okay, all right. And then all of a sudden her head dipped back and she vanished. I mean, yeah, couldn't you just hear this in a Silent Hill? Oh my God, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Which uh, at 45 seconds, I'm not going to say this is one of my favorite songs on the album, but it's one of my favorite moments on the album for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like when they lean into this stuff. I Again, I'm uh, being a, a fan of what white zombie used to do with that. I really like when they lean into the sort of horror movie elements of it, especially in these little interludes. Yeah. Right. These little, I mean, you know, in other contexts you might call them skits. I don't think that's really an appropriate thing to call these ones, but no, yeah, because these... they, like with the first one and with this one as well, that what they do that's different than I think a lot of the skits that you see on a lot of albums is that in general, they roll nicely into the song that follows it. Like they're exactly. a really good setup for the thing that comes next. And that's certainly the case between this and purity.
telepathic days I create this waste Back away from tangents on the verge of drastic ways Can't escape this place I deny your face Sweat gets in my eyes I think I'm slowly dying Put me in a homeless cellar Put me in a hole for shelter Someone hear me please All I see is hate I can hardly breathe or not get home And this is the track that primarily that they got sued over and, you know, really uh, had to remove from subsequent pressings of the album. Um, sure. This is actually kind of ironically not one of my favorite tracks on the album. It's good, but it's not one of my favorites. So, you know, I kind of, it bit not being available on subsequent pressings. I'm like, well, you're not missing It didn't. It, that yeah, much. yeah. It, it, <laughs> I mean, the the thing I'll say about this song is I think they strike a good balance between like melody and crunch. Yes, yes. I think they I think that works well. So I think it's a very listenable song. It is the two things that I think really work for me uh, on this track are the sort of the single line chorus when he he screams yes. hands on my face overbearing I can't get out. That's because that's just that does stick in your mind. And then uh, the. Towards the end, the you all stare, but you'll never see there's something inside me section, yep. because he does actually sing that. And that is genuinely catchy and quite tuneful. Yep. Yeah, that those were actually the, the lyrics that I pulled from this song was you all stare, but you'll never see there's something inside me. Yeah, it's, I mean, and what great lyrics as well. I mean, again, talking about, you know, reaching out to 14 year old boys. <laughs> That's like, holy shit. What great lyrics. Um, and then, so... Uh, after that, we get into track 10, which is Liberate. We're back to the sort of full-on aggressive heaviness. Yeah, and, and another very Pantera-esque groove, I think. Um, but another good example yes. of what Slipknot can do. It has a very galloping opening. It's got a balance of you know the riffs and the screams and the percussion and the scratches. Like it, but it, and and within that, it finds a groove. And I think that for me, like this is one of my favorite songs on the album. I think, and this is what I wish they would do more of. Because this is a version of Slipknot that I can get, I, I have more of a foothold for, you know? Right, right. Well, I would suggest, actually, then, in all seriousness, that you might, from album three onwards, they started experimenting more. From volume three 
through All Hope is Gone and even on the Grey Chapter. Uh, there is a lot more experimentation um, of groove and rhythm and even you know there are some songs that are acoustic guitars and stuff yeah um but yeah you know if you if you want a bit more variety rather than just the sort of full-on wall of noise then stuff from volume three onwards may be more to your liking and I, I would definitely say you know seek it out okay um uh, but yeah, I mean this is I'm glad you mentioned Pantera because I I when I was making my notes I was like am I you know, is it fair? Can I really mention sort of make a comparison with Pantera and groove metal to this one? I think I can, but will I get, you know, laughed at? But I no, would I- say that it is that as a whole, they have a very heavy Pantera influence as a, to my ears as a whole on this whole album. But certainly with some songs, it's like, I don't want to say blatant because that makes it sound bad, but it is very evident, and this is one of them. Yes, I, d- exactly. I would agree. I think I agree with that 100%. I mean, the, the whole pre-chorus bit, where he's uh, singing, stand off of the ship, back off or I'll spit. Yeah. So soft you forget. Dude, totally. That just, you can totally imagine that in a Pantera song. You know, the groove can, of it, the rhythm. You can hear Anselmo in some p- points too, you know what I mean? As Just as far as his delivery. Um, yeah. I think for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the percussion in this track as well, I think is especially impressive i mean it's great throughout the whole album but uh here and especially in the middle eight uh is really impressive because it's not only is it sort of well done but it just sounds like there's an entire it sounds like dozens of people it sounds like there's an entire crowd of people banging away sure. on there during the middle eight of this track uh and, and this track strikes me as one that would play very well live right and they do this is i believe this is a regular live track yeah i've certainly heard you know recordings of it live so uh partly because you can you know you can sing along yeah. to that main to that main bit quite easily um you know it's a, it's a good heavy track as i say back to the heaviness after that sort of brief breather um and then into track 11 which is prosthetics a very nightmare on elm street opening scene factory sort of horror movie build-up feel to it yep um and also very much feels like dead skin mask from slayer 
because it's that whole um, ah right yeah you know it's the whole s- story of a killer sort of thing yes oh it's totally from a yeah you know a killer who can't help himself right point of view um the uh, this is i mean if you can believe it we're only 30 minutes into the album here <laughs> no, which is crazy yes <laughs> that, that is very difficult uh, to believe but this for me is kind of where it starts to drag a little uh these last like half dozen tracks i mean as i say i don't think any of them are bad i i think this is a great album but this is where we start to get into tracks that you could probably lose and you know wouldn't necessarily suffer for it um and i think this is one of them the only bit of this track that really that i think is really great uh is when Corey's shouting damn it man i knew it was a mistake and you've got that that weird atonal riff with the string yeah, bend and yeah. that's really great and really catchy, but that's literally the only part of this song that stands out to me. Yeah. I mean, the, the note that I made to myself is that it, it's disturbing, but it also feels forced a little bit. Like I, I don't know. I, I feel like these guys are at their best when it's about the energy. Right. Uh, because when they, when, when it doesn't have that feel, it can feel forced. At time, like the imagery, the the um, yeah, yeah, you know, the the we're trying to shock you, we're trying to disturb you. Like it, there's, it doesn't feel forced when the energy is behind it, and when right when they're trying, and so maybe it's just that they were trying to do a little bit more storytelling here, and it just didn't play as well as the fire hose sort of approach. I think that's fair. I mean, compare it to something like Angel of Death, you know, Slayer's right. Angel of Death, which, which is which, where the, the, if you just take the lyrics by themselves. They're kind of cheesy and not particularly sort of, you know, they're they're a bit farcical almost. Right. But coupled coupled with the delivery of that song, and suddenly it's this sonic assault, and you're like, holy shit, right. you know, this is really creepy. Absolutely. And yeah, I agree with you. I just don't think the execution was quite there on this song. Uh next track, track twelve, is No Life. <laughs> My freedom is best Whole country's on hell So rest And everyone was a suspect You can't feel the flow Because you died Face down on a suicide The motherfuckers are self-destroying Nobody got no back It's all front Save this My wage is blood Under the dead This is a Limp Biscuit song. There's no doubt. Like this is a legit. This is like a. This is right off of a Limp Biscuit album. I'm not um, sure I agree with that. From but fair the delivery enough. of the lyrics, that is very Fred Durst. Um, other than the drums, which again are the constant differentiator for me of this band from all of those other bands, this to me played just like a Limp Biscuit song. Huh. Okay, so the main reason I will push back against that is. Uh, and this may sound like a weird sort of backhanded compliment. Um, the thing about Limp Biscuit, Fred Durst, 
for all that we may mock him for, you know, whatever reasons. Well, deservedly Fred- so, because he 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 took whatever goodwill they had after that first album and showed you who he really was and, and pitched it, it up against the yeah, wall. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. and the whole Woodstock thing. Like I, I will yeah. never defend uh, Limp Biscuit except to say that I think they are unjustly musically maligned. Um, especially that first album, because people tend to just think back on Limp Bizkit as a complete joke at this point. But I really liked that first album. No, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. But what I was going to say was the the one thing you can say about uh, Fred Durst especially is that that man has rhythm. And when he's on it, he is always, he's in time, he's on rhythm, he's on point, yep. you know, he hits like all the beats and stuff he's really really good at that and the thing about this song i think this song as odd as it may thing as it may sound to say i think this actually demonstrates the complexity of slipknot songs because the verses here sound so chaotic as if almost as if Corey's not really following a rhythm. Yeah. The drums and percussion are all over the place, like always. The guitars are not playing a sort of regular riff, and it sounds like a mess. It sounds like, oh my, is there even a beat here? What the fuck's going on? Uh-huh. But then, of course, when the chorus kicks in, it's bang, bang on time, and you realise, you know, then that it wasn't a big old it was mess. All part of the plan. And they, right, and they were playing it exactly as written. Right. And I think that is a really great demonstration of how good musician, you know, what great musicians this band are. And I think differentiates it from a band like Limp Bizkit because, like I say, you know, love or hate them, the one thing you can always say about Fred Durst and Wes Borland and Limp Bizkit as a whole is that they were very, very rhythmic and groovy. They were always, they hit every right. beat. Right, right, They made you want to tap your feet and jump up and down in time with the There's rhythm. There's more of a symmetry there, whereas I yeah. think part of, part of what Slipknot is bringing to the table is that raw you know, frayed yeah. sort of feel to it, which I, I think so. So this, this to me is a slipknot version of a Limp Bizkit song. <laughs> I will revise my take on that. This is, the, <laughs> this is a slipknot version of a Limp Bizkit song. It's like it. they did a cover of a Limp Bizkit song <laughs> and added their own spin to it, which I think fits your expectations for a cover song, if I'm not mistaken. It does actually. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They made it their own. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay. On to track 13, which is diluted. Desire all of us 
this song to me feels like two songs put together uh, by Demons Be Driven from Pantera and uh, something from Deftones that I can't remember the name of. Interesting. That's- which bit? Which bit, which bit is which? Because this song, one of the things I like about this song is how everything builds up so that every verse is more intense and heavier than the last until you well, get to the chorus. Well, remember, By Demons Be Driven was that whole build up and then the, the chorus was just brutal. Yeah. Right. And Deftones, um, maybe Shove, is that the name of the song from Deftones? Oh, I don't know that one. Or, or I probably do, but maybe not. Don't re- I don't know my Deftones very well. Uh, maybe, yeah, I know same here. Maybe don't hits. recognize the name. But um, if, I, if I heard it, I might recognize it. It's the whole meandering sort of slow verse stuff that builds up to the very powerful chorus sort of thing. Right, right. So that, Which, that to me was the Deftones piece, and then the, the heavy stuff to me felt like uh, more Pantera. Yeah. Yeah, I must admit, I hadn't thought of a Pantera connection at all, but now that you say it, yeah, the the main chorus, what the hell did I do to deserve all of this? That bit, actually, yeah, kind of does sound a bit Pantera-ish. Um, and I like some of the lyrics here, too. I keep my scars from prying eyes incapable of ever knowing why. Yes. Yeah, no, it's... Good stuff th- there. Th- there is some good stuff here, yeah. Um, and the first... Uh, semitone riff in the verse, which is really, I mean, it's literally just, you know, wh- whether it's Mick or Jim, one of the guitars going jing, 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 jing. That's all it is. Um, right. But it's played so well and it fits so well. I love it. It's so simple. And, you know, I've talked about this before. I think it demonstrates how powerful simple things can be in the right context. You know, if you execute them well enough and you put them in the right context. Nobody is going to claim that that's like some kind of crazy, technical, amazing riff, but it just fits the song so well. Yeah. I really like it. And it goes back to what you said before about highlighting their complexity in this simplicity. Because again, if they if everything was just the same, then all you feel like they're capable of is that wall of noise. But the fact that they have songs on the album that show more versatility and show more of a plan, I think... It, it, it speaks it well of you appreciate yeah. it, Yes, exactly. It helps you appreciate more what they're doing here. Yeah, and that it is all deliberate and it's part Correct. of the plan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so track 14 is Only One. Which again reminded me of Pantera, kind of like Walk. 
oh, I, I suppose I can see that. Lyrically, I can see that. I'm not sure if musically I do. Lyrically, I can see it, absolutely. But musically, uh, yeah, I don't know. But it's got it's got another great um, sort of special effects intro. Yep. Um, and this is why they have a guy on stage, well, and in the band, who's literally his entire job is just to play the samples and a bit of keyboards and lay yep. down sort of atmospheric beds and stuff like that. And, you know, in a, in a metal band that may say, well, can't you just do that from backing tracks? But it's such, such an integral part of their sound. I think it's entirely understandable. I think he was, um, uh, Craig Jones. I think he was a guitarist actually, uh, at first in the band. And then he, that he moved on to doing the, the samples and stuff full time because they were like, do you know what? We actually need somebody to do this all the time. We can't, you know, well, to be able to bring that live too is such a huge like. And again, I have not seen um, these guys live, but I would say that their reputation is as much for their live presentation as it is for what you hear. Oh, completely, yeah, yeah. on their albums. And so, to be able to really provide people the full experience live is important. It's like when you see, and again, people laugh at this, but like for me, there are a lot of the bands I I grew up listening to and still love to this day have keyboards. And when you see a band live and they don't bring that element with them, that to me really leaves a lot out of the experience. And so I always appreciate it when a band, when the live experience includes the keyboards. Right. Well, and also specifically when the keyboards or atmospherics or whatever aren't on a backing track. That's the other thing because, I mean, and for some bands it works. I'm not knocking it. Paradise Lost, for example, you know, do play all that stuff on a backing track, but for certain bands, it's the trouble with putting them on a backing track is that you are then locked in to your Correct. performance of that song. And yep. because Slipknot shows are so, live shows are so chaotic, and because they do improvise, and because Corey engages with the crowd a lot when you see them, you see, I've, I have never seen them live, but I've seen plenty of videos and heard their live albums and stuff. And there is so much engagement going on with the crowd that. I think having them on backing tracks would be really detrimental because it wouldn't allow them to sort of read the crowd in the way that they do and modify the timing of the show accordingly. Right. So I think, yeah, you know, that's because I know some people go, really, they have a guy who just plays the samples. And I'm like, yeah, but dude, it's so important. You don't understand. Right. <laughs> right. Because again, this is, an, as we talked about before, it's the sum that we're yes. talking about here. And so every piece is equally important to that. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, I will say that the chorus of this always makes me think of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. You know, two men enter, one man leaves. Yeah, yeah, only uh, one of us walks away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> always makes me think of that. Uh, so, uh, and maybe and, that might be why uh, it made me think of Walk too from Pantera. Right, could be, yes. Yes, could be. Um, so on to track 15, which on the original release of the track was the last track, and that uh-huh. is Scissors. Some wind spilled 
which has a slow and interesting buildup. Like it, you know, at like 40 seconds, the bass starts creeping in and it's kind of slithery and then the drums are kind of muted in the beginning and then they sort of come to the front. So I, I like how they build up this song. I yeah, I think it feels like a last track. Yeah, that's the, because because of all that, you've got again another extended SFX intro. Uh, the percussion, as you say, sort of like building up and ramping up. The bass coming in low and slow yeah. before everything else. It feels like you know you go oh, oh okay, this is going to be a dirge. This is going to be a track to really sort of finish on and put a cap on the album. And like I say, on the original release, it did that. Yeah, um, and. Uh, it's I'm trying to remember how long it is now. It's uh, eight and a half minutes long. That's the other thing. It's the longest track on the album, right? By a country Re- mile. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but again, doesn't because of the way it's designed, doesn't actually feel like it. You know, it doesn't feel like you're listening to an eight and a half minute song. Not for me, anyway. Right? No, uh, I didn't you can think tell it totally it, overstayed its welcome. I, I I thought that it it was a little bit formulaic it's a long parts, song. but I really liked I liked the bookends of this song. I really liked the way it came in, and I really liked the way it finishes. Right, right. Well, and this is uh, one of the things I like about it, and this is partly to do with its length. Is it's a showcase for the non guitar parts yeah. of the instrumentation in the band like the samples the scratching and the percussion all get a real real sounding here like real sh- this track is a real showcase for them right uh and i re- i really appreciate that i really like that there is a track that lets you understand how much those things are a part of the sound of this band um and then also yes the the biding my time until the time is right bit that starts off pretty genuinely creepy as well sure yeah, absolutely. I really like that. Um, so, and then, then, so this is where things get complicated. <laughs> so, because of all the different editions. Right. So, on the edition we have, and on many editions of the album that have been pressed since, we then have uh, a bunch of tracks that are essentially sort of B sides or demos um, leading up to the hidden track, which originally was the hidden track at the end of scissors. Right. But like I say, everything's like changed around now. So, so let's go through all these basically at once. So we've got, uh, me inside, get this interloper despise the, and then the, the sort of the silent bit, the hidden track, which is now at the end of despise. Yep. Um, and then a recording of the band talking and then the hidden track Eeyore. So what has got me bleeding claustrophobic scars Severed me from all emotion Life is just too fucking hard I can fix what's all it took Cause this need ain't doing me no good Fall on my face but can't you see This fucking life is telling me Telling me Telling me Telling me I don't like a fucking thing Come and go, 
still left out of the gutter, little small song. I take nothing but the best in the area. Get me deep, my fucker, I'll spell you down. Please don't run that many as me, but I'm trying to get a panic game. Don't run a bomb, so she's not giving everything. Man, fuck up my business, don't talk it. See, it's gotta be this way. Give me the money, I wanna lay down. Give me the money, I wanna lay down. Give me the money, I wanna lay down. Give me the money, I wanna fuck you up. Psychopathic days, hackering this place Back away from tangents on the birds of dust with waves Can't escape this place, hiding on my face Sweat gets in my eyes, I shot it all I can find Hands on my face, overbearing, I can't get out Hands on my face, overbearing, I can't get out So for me, me inside feels like a B-side. Yeah, totally. I totally agree with that. It's like, it doesn't, yeah, it's okay, but it just doesn't feel as refined as the album tracks. It, it feels like they're not as confident, you know? It's not as fully formed, yeah, I, I, I think, it, which makes it a perfect B-side. And I, I would say, like, Get This reminds me of, like, one of the sillier songs that, like, Anthrax would do. Uh, yes on a lot of their albums but it's a fun song but it totally reminds me it's like an on the man sort of thing um you know with them almost kind of goofing around i hadn't made that comparison but now that you say it that's perfect that's exactly what it is it's a silly i mean it's it's fun it's a great like angry rage filled song you know yeah but the, the lyrics yeah yeah, for anybody who doesn't know the track, the lyrics are basically them going, fuck every other band, you're all shit, we're great, suck our nuts. That's basically <laughs> the lyrics. Right. Uh, it, it's just silly, but it is, it's also a great song. And the one thing it does have is that wonderful, wonderful bit in, I think, the second or third verse, uh, the lovely rhythmic bit where he sings, it's hate motherfucker, hate motherfucker, hate. Yeah. I love that. That is such a fucking great line. It's such a shame that they couldn't, sort of reverse engineer that into another track on the album, you know, onto a better track. <laughs> right. But it is, but this, this to me is like the most fun one of the, of these extra tracks. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you get two, which are essentially demos. So interloper is basically a demo of diluted Yeah, and uh, despise is a demo of purity, but neither of them are as good. Agreed. Um, I'm pretty sure that parts of both of these demos have actually also ended up in other songs besides the ones that the demos of. But interesting for that, right? Like it's always interesting to hear um, how pieces of a song evolved into something else or, you know, where you can hear where they then use that in another song or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's for me. That's the most interesting thing about these is like, you know, sort of, yeah, seeing, Oh, they use that bit in this other song uh, and realizing that the final songs that you're hearing in the album have been through so much iteration and revision to become the great songs that they are. Right. Um, and I think in, from that point of view, it's valuable for, you know, kids who are listening to this, who maybe want to be in bands. I think that it's actually, you know, that is one thing that... I agree. Uh, ...including demo versions of tracks is really valuable for, to show these kids, these songs don't spring fully formed. Exactly. 
like Athena yes. from the heads of, uh, you know, of the yep. songwriters. It's just like writing, man. There's a first draft and a second draft. And <laughs> exactly, yeah. And then a ninth and a tenth draft. Yep. And yeah. <laughs> and then you take this scene and you put it in the beginning of the book and you move this chapter around and all that stuff. And then you, you eventually get it to a place where you feel comfortable putting it out there. Exactly. So, yeah, on the uh, uh, original release, Scissors lasted eight and a half minutes. There was a silence then for about five minutes. Uh, and then you get the two hidden bits. Whereas on this release, they, these come at the end of despise the demo yep. instead, but it, but they are the same. They are basically, you know, they're exactly the same extra bits. And those extra bits are one of them is a conversation, a recording of a conversation allegedly while the band are watching a coprophiliac porn movie, which is why so many of them are going, Oh my God, that's disgusting. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that, you know, I mean, obviously, who knows whether that's true, but that's what they claim. Um, and then you get uh, and that doesn't last for all that long. Uh, and then you get a, a bit more silence and then a hidden track called Eeyore, which is actually a really good song. Yeah, very punky, very thrashy. This is the one where I, he does the, uh, you know, the the one sort of drum blast. Uh that I that immediately made me think of Metallica's one. Right, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, this Apparently this song is, uh, I read, is allegedly about a fan from the local scene, I think from the Des Moines scene. Oh. Uh, a big guy who would literally just throw himself into the pit to as an excuse to beat people up. Uh, and everybody fucking hated him. Okay. And that's why, he was that that's why the song ends. Right. That's why this song ends with Corey basically shouting stupid fuck at the top of his lungs over and over again. <laughs> and why you have lyrics like, you know, I am the great big mouth and I'm the supersized man and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, th- that's what I've read anyway. Again, you know, who knows how true any of these explanations for the meanings behind songs really are. And that is, that is the end of the album. Um, so what were your three favorite tracks? You said there were three. So I had, what did I have down? I think I highlighted them. Uh, I liked Liberate, I liked Purity, and I liked uh, Sick. And maybe four, because Surfacing was really good. Surfacing was the one that I thought was just a really good example of like what their sound was. So yeah, I yeah. would say Sick, Surfacing, uh, Purity, and Liberate. Okay, interesting. It's That's really interesting for me that Purity would be one of your favorite songs um what did i say oh you know what's funny is my note initially said here and i can't remember when we just talked about it exactly what i said but it says uh it was the balance of melody and crunch is maybe the best on this song in terms of the overall balance and my my note was one of my favorites dot 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 i guess so (laughs) so which i think kind of speaks to mm, the overall feel that I have about this album. Like clearly there are songs on this album that I enjoy. Um, but to me, Slipknot is another bite of the same apple that is new metal. You know what I mean? Right. It's just a bite from a, it, it's a, it's a slightly different bite. And so, you know, seeing and reading about and kind of hearing about what an effect that this had on the music scene and how sort of revolutionary it was considered. Like, I don't get it. Um, in the way that a lot of other people get it, but, but that's just me, you know? And so like, I, oh, sure, I didn't sure. dislike it. I, I would listen to these guys in the same vein that I would listen to a corn or a limp biscuit album. Like, and, and I have liked albums from both of those bands. 
but that's those are not go-to albums by any sense of the imagination. And so I would put Slipknot in that category as well. Like ha- you having told me that their later albums explore more of the groove factor and that there might be more for me there has me excited to go and check those out because I haven't listened to any of those. So that is something that I would want to do. And I've always felt like Slipknot was a band that I didn't have a good frame of reference for because I had never really given them the time. And so I I actually feel like I do now. I, I feel like I have a much right. better idea of where they fit. And so um, I can totally see the elements that people think set this band apart from those other bands. I just think for me overall, they're they're part of that same group of bands. Right. But I would, I would genuinely, yeah, say that give, give volume three a listen. And then, and I'm not saying necessarily that volume three will in itself massively appeal to you. Sure. But I think that in turn will give you the grounding to, you know, maybe like, um, all hope is gone. That sort of um, actually might really appeal to you because that's even more experimental. Well, and I also want to check out stone sour. Like I haven't listened to any of their stuff. And so I have stone no sour is much more right. Stone sour is much more sort of straight ahead rock metal. Uh-huh. Um, and not bad for that, you know, because that's no, and that just might the sort be of more in my wheelhouse. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, with Jim and Corey, obviously, you know, playing in it, it sounds fantastic. Um, you know, there are several Stone Sour songs that are firmly among my sort of go-to favorite metal tracks. So, um, I'm just glad that, you know, that you gave it the time and that you, there were some songs on this that you actively enjoyed. For sure. Because obviously, you know, this isn't the sort of band that you would normally no, but they're kind <laughs> of a, a lot of time listening. Like to. there is a level of fascination that I have with them because of the whole sum of its parts thing. Like that to right, me, just right. as someone who enjoys how music is put together, is interesting to me. So, so that was enough in the energy too. Like yeah. you know, there has to be something for me to have some sort of a connection with an album, whether it's the energy, whether it's the riffs, whether it's the guitar, like. And for these guys, it was definitely the energy that I latched onto from the beginning and then started to really kind of pick apart the different elements that formed this whole, but it really is meant to be experienced as a whole. Yeah. Well, and talking about energy and their sort of place within the new metal scene, like I und- I disagree, but I understand what you're saying about sort of how you don't feel they're that far apart from somebody like Limp Bizkit or Korn, but, you know, think uh lincoln park were also labeled new metal for sure when they started and can you think of two further apart bands within supposedly the same genre right. as you know slipknot and lincoln park that's nuts that you know that that genre can supposedly encompass two such incredibly different bands absolutely uh, I, I find that fascinating it just goes to show that genres are all bollocks. <laughs> it, it, it does, but it also has highlighted for me that that is a particular genre, the whole new metal genre, which, because I wasn't a fan of it at the time, I did not spend a lot of time exploring, and I probably need to spend some more time with it. Right. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. All right. So before we get to the homework, let's just quickly run through uh, you know, the usual uh, house keeping as it were. So thank you for listening, everyone. Remember, if you enjoy the show, please spread the word, rate us on iTunes and on Google Play Podcasts. And of course, you can support us directly on the Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash thrash it out. If you want to get in touch, go to thrash it out podcast.com for links to our email, um, the show email and our individual Twitter accounts. And of course, you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out.
All right, homework. And you told me you weren't sure what you were going to do for homework until like just a few days ago. Yes, because I've been, you know, as we've talked about before, when we're focused on a particular album, like I, I feel like I, I don't give myself permission to really jump into a lot of other stuff when we're yeah getting ready for an episode, especially as it gets closer. I really tend to try to dial into the thing that we're listening to. But an album that I picked up, I picked up actually all three of their albums probably about a month, month and a half ago. And one in particular, I have not been able to stop listening to. So we are going to be listening to Huntress is the name of the band. And we are going to be listening to their debut album from 2012 called Spell Eater. And this band is just rocketing up my internal favorites chart. Uh, Jill Janice, talk about a singer who has range and can do a lot of different things on an album. Wait until you hear Jill Janice on this Huntress album. They are, I'm very excited. I don't want to overhype it. I just want people to, hopefully people haven't heard this band before or are not really that familiar with them, but uh, because I wasn't, but holy crap, has this album just been really on the top of my playlist lately. I've literally never even heard of them. Oh, I can't wait now. So now I'm even more excited. <laughs> so yes, Huntress. It came out in April of 2012 uh, on Napalm Records, and uh, it is their debut album. Spell Eater. All right, cool. Fantastic. All right, well, I can't wait to uh, dig into that then. I'll go and uh, grab a copy, and uh, yeah, you know, we'll see how that sounds. In the meantime, thank you everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time. Take care. <laughs>